You'll recall earlier when we mentioned Hal Lindsey's popular books, including the runway bestseller, The Late Great Planet Earth, which dramatized the imminent Revelation-style end of the world that was going to transpire during the 70s, and then the 80s, the 90s, and then the year 2000, as revealed by his recalcitrant subsequent efforts. Who are you going to believe about the end of the world, baby? Tim LaHaye or your lying eyes? Exactly. But in 1995, the torch of evangelical potboiler fear-mongering was passed from Lindsay to the daring duo of pastor Tim LaHaye and Christian author Jerry B. Jenkins, who issued the first of what would eventually become a 16-novel series bringing to life the pre-millennialist vision of the end times in a modern American, but also grudgingly global, context. To deliver the kind of quality content you deserve, I of course read all 16 of these novels, and we will now begin my eight-hour in-depth satire of their contents. Shh! Don't worry, everyone. He's not going to do that. You think Dana would let him do that to you? Never. Jesuit? Do not give me that book. Tell the nice people the truth. I didn't read any of the books. What was that? Speak up, please. I didn't read a single one of those evangelical doorstops. I mean, how much spare time do you think I have? But I did, in fact, watch both film versions of the first novel, The Eponymous, Left Behind. Both? They make two versions of this thing? Oh yeah. And normally connoisseurs of bad acting would be excited that the year 2000 version stars wooden former teen heartthrob turned anti-evolution activist Kirk Cameron. But that's not the best bad acting news? It appears that it's not, because the 2014 one stars Nicholas fucking Cage. The unbearable weight of massive talent, vampires kiss face-off, Mandy, Bat Lieutenant, Porter, Call, New Orleans, Sailor and Wild at Heart, Wickerman, The Bees, Oh God, Not the Bees, Nicholas Cage? Or, I barely read the script and took this job exclusively to pay back taxes on my T-Rex skull purchase, Nicholas Cage. Alas, it's definitely the latter, with Cage taking on the dull role of an irreligious, unfaithful airline pilot. I think what he's going for is quietly conflicted, mature Gregory Peck figure, but mostly he just looks dazed or tired. The Cage version is limp, but a competently made, professional-looking, low-budget film that appears to have been aimed at a mainstream audience, and it takes liberties with the plot that the presumably more faithful earlier film version doesn't. So we'll briefly discuss the later film first, before feasting on the revelation fest that is the Cameron epic. In this story, we have three main characters— Cage's pilot, his disaffected adult daughter who is visiting home for her wayward dad's birthday, and a bearded young bohunk. Chad Michael Murray. Who plays a cable news correspondent who meet-cutes Cage's daughter at the airport after she discovers her father's impending infidelity. Bohunk is on Cage's flight to London. Midway through, though, a bunch of people on the plane disappear, leaving their clothes in their seats. Turns out the same thing is happening everywhere, as Cage's daughter discovers at a mall when she hugs her little brother and he vanishes, leaving her holding only his Oshkosh dungarees. This rendition of the Christian rapture is where they spend most of the non-Cage portion of their 16 million budget, as we see driverless cars smashing through the windows of the mall, some planes dropping out of the sky with only marginally terrible CGI, etc., etc. When we return to Cage's plane, he discovers his co-pilot is among the disappeared, And he struggles to make contact with air traffic control because, I guess those guys were all really religious or something? 
Anyway, he can't reach anyone, and meanwhile his not-good-enough-for-Jesus-remaining-passengers do that movie thing where somehow they live in a world where nobody on the plane has ever heard of the Rapture or the Book of Revelation, in spite of the billions of hours of religious TV and radio they have no doubt passively absorbed. Anyway, they argue about the plausibility of a bunch of obviously wrong solutions before someone finally says, No, but... Jesus, and then everyone starts to realize they're stuck on Earth for the bad Antichrist stuff that's obviously coming soon. The mom got raptured too. Discovering this, Cage's daughter wanders into a church where the minister's congregation has flown up to meet the Lord in the air. But the minister himself was left behind because he didn't really believe all the shit he said, he just pretended. He helps Cage's daughter understand that the world's about to get real, real fucked up for the next few years, again quoting our favorite book of the Bible. In reaction, she decides to kill herself, but changes her mind when she gets her dad and Beardo's distress call, opting instead to clear a highway so they can make an emergency landing. If this all doesn't sound great, that's because it isn't. Leah Thompson appears to be literally unconscious at times as she sleepwalks through her role as the pilot's innocent, Christ-fearing, soon-raptured wife. Actress Chloe Steele, as the daughter, tries gamely to introduce some emotional stakes to this dreck, and Murray offers some very tame Jesus-approved sex appeal. But just like Cage's plane, the whole thing's going down in flames. The film earned a coveted 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. Truly a cinematic achievement. Yes, indeed. So, let's turn back to the much more overtly religious, probably faithful to the source material, Kirk Cameron version. Again, didn't read the book, honestly don't feel bad about it. Before we discuss this movie, he insists that I mention that Kirk Cameron, in addition to being known for his mediocre 1980s sitcom acting and his one-time teen-beat heartthrob status for millions of girls Jesuit's age, has spent most of the succeeding decades trying to bring people to Christ by proving that basic science isn't true. He is, of course, a dedicated creationist apologist and has lent his name to some astonishingly stupid presentations. None more so than this, which against incredibly strong competition, may in fact be the most legendarily stupid creationist video in existence. The one in which Cameron and fellow fundamentalist anti-evolution activist Ray Comfort explained their single fruit approach to refuting Darwin's satanic theory. Learned that when you really look at the evidence, the truth is it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to believe in God. You've really got to ignore the facts. Well, it's funny how we equate the word atheism with intellectual. Yeah. It's the exact opposite. That's right. Behold. The Atheist's Nightmare. Now, if you study a well-made banana, you'll find on the far side, there are three ridges. On the close side, two ridges. If you get your hand ready to grip a banana, you'll find on the far side, there are three grooves. On the close side, two grooves. The banana and the hand are perfectly made one for the other. You'll find the maker of the banana, Almighty God, has made it with a non-slip surface. It has outward indicators of inward contents. Green, too early. Yellow, just right. Black, too late. Now, if you go to the top of the banana, you'll find, as with the soda can makers, they placed a tab at the top, so God has placed a tab at the top. When you pull the tab, the contents don't squirt in your face. You'll find the wrapper, which is biodegradable, has perforations. Notice how gracefully it sits over the human hand. Notice it has a point at the top for ease of entry. It's just the right shape for the human mouth. It's chewy, easy to digest, and it's even curved toward the face to make the whole process so much easier. Seriously, Kurt, the whole of creation testifies to the genius of God's creative oh, hand. It absolutely does. You think, think of the human eye. Uh, we simply cannot allow ourselves to forget the classics, Dana. 
So serving the Lord is job one for Mr. Cameron, and producing a watchable film is like, I don't know, job five? Six? The plot of Left Behind 2000 is significantly more intricate than the Cage version. In this one, Cameron's rendition of the cable news guy, whose name in both versions, we should you not, is Buck Williams. Is that really a dumber name than Wolf Blitzer, though? Yeah. Old Buck got himself a hell of a scoop by being on the ground in Israel as a coalition of unspecified Arab states launched their combined air forces toward the Jewish homeland. It looks like the Israeli Air Force never sleeps. Those are not our planes. Not from that direction. Let's take cover. only for them to fall out of the sky in balls of fire because Jesus threw thunderbolts or some shit. Those planes are coming down, but we haven't fired a shot. It's not possible. In this version, the cheating pilot is seen experiencing domestic turmoil before his fateful rapture flight, which instead of dominating the running time is a relatively brief Act One-only event here. Because there's so golding much prophecy to prophesy. In the meantime, Brick Manparts hears from one of his sources, Dirk Burton. Another name that makes Jesuit giggle. Dirk meets with him in a total deep-throat Watergate parking garage scenario and blathers a seemingly insane plan that you'll be shocked to learn turns out to be really true. Meet me at the usual spot. Hey. The world's in danger, Buck. All of us. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Dirk, just calm down. Knock it down a couple thousand RPMs. What's the matter? It's Catherine. I got the file. He thought it was locked, but I got it. I got in. What do you know about Rosenzweig? Dirk, what are you talking about? Don't you see? I'm Rosenzweig. The formula. Come see, it's, it's sealed so clear. What is? What is? The attack. The attack. The, the bombers exploded. The flight's exploding. You see? See, it's all, it's all, it's all, it's all, it's all fitting together now. I see it. Because they've been behind this whole thing from the very beginning. The research grants. The, the, the trust funds. And then, there, and then there's the currency. That's the next step. You see? The, the, the dollar, the, the pound, the yen, the euro. They're going to make it all into one. One. And don't you see, Buck? Don't you see? It's always about the money, isn't it? What do you know about life? Sorry, come on, he must have said something. Come on, come on. Think! Think, Buck! Think! After the rapture, our pilot lands normally at an airport, but of course everything else is going haywire across the globe since a bunch of people who were probably not a lot of fun at parties have suddenly all vanished. The U.S. president... And maybe all world leaders? It's unclear. ...died in some sort of attack and were introduced to an Eastern European smoothie named Nikolai Carpathia, who's also the Secretary General of the UN. We first see him issuing a calming speech to the world, so we're pretty sure he's bad news from the jump. Brant Goodlove hitches a ride with the pilot, who has a hookup for the only flight cleared to head back to New York. At this point, the narrative splits. In the boring half, the pilot gradually finds out the Bible is real and gives himself over to Jesus, while his daughter follows a similar path from the other movie, except in this one she accepts the Lord instead of trying to kill herself. And in this version, the left-behind unbelieving pastor finds out what's really going down when he and the very bored audience listens to a VHS left behind by an already raptured senior pastor and true believer. This tape offers a very clear explication of the secret behind their predicament. Hello, I'm Pastor Vernon Billings of the New Hope Village Church. If you're watching this tape, you are no doubt confused. Let me encourage you. 
your loved ones, your children, your friends, and your acquaintances have not been snatched away by some evil force or some invasion from outer space. You're watching this tape because millions of people have disappeared. Babies and children, still innocent in God's eyes, have vanished. There is much to fear, but not for those who are missing. Because they have placed their faith in Christ alone for salvation. They have been taken to heaven by Jesus himself. First Thessalonians. Our characters are super duper fucked because they're in the middle of the plot of the book of Revelation. But the real action in the year 2000 version is with Kirk Cameron's barred tooth chip as he uses his reporting skills and, eventually, the super insight powers God grants him after he gets saved, to realize that the insidious bankers we've followed throughout the movie are simply pawns of the real Antichrist, none other than the suavely accented foreigner who runs the UN. You don't say. Yeah. Bolt God Saves is even in the room when Nikolai Carpathia does his heel turn and declares a one-world government, assigning ten flunkies to be his sub-leaders, bringing peace to the world. But Blip Hubastank knows the truth. We are about to turn this planet into a paradise. Unimaginable. Only a few short weeks ago, ten oasis regions, where each delegate is given complete control over his respective area. True global community, a true world of peace. This marks the beginning of our seven years of peace. Of seven years. This marks the beginning of the rise of the Antichrist. He will control ten kingdoms, which in turn will control the world. The Antichrist will sit in the temple of God and he will declare to the whole world that he is God. Upon each of you, I grant all the power and authority due to your new positions. You are now kings and queens in your own lands, bringing prosperity and plenty to your people. All in my name. Then the newly revealed Antichrist caps the two bankers. We made you, Nikolai. You're our creation. I see. Give me your sidearm. So begins an object lesson in leadership. On your knees, Jonathan. No. No, I will do no such thing. hypnotizes the assembled potentates into believing it was instead a murder-suicide, and the only person who's free from his spell as the meeting ends is none other than Brack Christfan. As we conclude, the pilot, his daughter, and the newly believing left-behind pastor are joined by Kirk Bananahand in church as they prepare to endure the prophesied seven years of bad vibes from Satan's right-hand man. The End. Why did we spend all the time going over a movie that only you, Kirk Cameron's mom, and the Lord Jesus remembers? Well, mostly because the Left Behind books, and in fact the Cameron version of the movie, which was filming as the 90s ended, are prime examples of the era's fascination with both religious and secular end-of-the-world scenarios. Want further proof? Well, as Greer reminded me in his book, the highways of my youth were dotted with cars featuring bumper stickers sporting slogans like Warning, in case of rapture, this car will be unoccupied. 
Not to say it ended with the millennium, of course. In 2012, when Greer's book was written, the internet had empowered a whole new type of business designed to capitalize on a combination of believer's zeal and the American pastime of pampering our pets. Quote, A handful of ingenious promoters are currently offering rapture pet care services. In exchange for cash up front, they'll take in the pets of believers when they're whisked away to meet Jesus in the clouds. Now that, my friends is a sweet grift. As I mentioned, this mania wasn't limited to the religious. Plenty of the credulous in the premillennial hysteria were obsessed with certain of the more obscure pronouncements of 16th century self-promoter and supposed future seer Nostradamus. For example, In the year 1999 and seven months, from the sky will come a great king of terror to resuscitate the great king of Angoulême before and after Mars reigns at his will. Greer lists this as one of a number of predictions that were supposed to come to pass by July of 99, though this hoopla was eventually drowned out by the Y2K problem. A real thing, but arguably one that was accompanied by an overreaction slash freakout that overstated the scale of the problem. Of course, when no asteroid or rain of nukes, the predictors of Nostradamian doom, actually appeared, the usual suspects just moved on to the supposed 2012 Mayan end of the world, and we all know how that worked out. Greer points out that the idea of immediacy is really the addictive element of the apocalypse for most who buy into the meme. People like believing it because it's exciting. Even though, as he also points out, the vast majority of those who claim to believe the end is coming soon sure don't live like it. I mean, if you really believe, why do you have a 401k? The point is to buy into something that will soon prove you right and smart and everyone who disagreed as wrong and dumb. And possibly on fire. And what could be more QAnon-friendly than that idea? Okay, so we've covered the Book of Revelation and how it ties to both the millennialism of the 1990s and the QAnon movement. But as I promised, I want to dive a little deeper into one of the few topics I am actually a world expert on. What it was like to be a young white American man obsessively fascinated by those with weird beliefs swimming through the culture of the mid-1990s. As I noted earlier, many see this era as a decade of what, from our vantage point, look like some pretty first-world problems. For example, one of the political issues we were dealing with at the time, this is absolutely true, was whether we should pay the U.S. national debt all the way down, or just part of the way down. Yeah, sounds rough. From the 50,000-foot view, it was a pretty rosy time for Americans. The Soviets had collapsed, the consumer internet had just gotten going, the U.S. wasn't involved in any long-draining ground wars, nobody was attacking the Capitol building because their guy didn't win even though he claimed he did, we had two big towers standing on the southern tip of Manhattan. You get it. Comparatively, times were fat and happy. And that's all true, but there was an undercurrent of unease from that impending calendar changeover to a new millennium that caused the daffier elements of our culture to start vibrating on a weird frequency that it seems to me has carried through to the QAnon of the present. So, let's introduce your mostly reliable narrator, as I have Dana, paint you a picture in words. Imagine, if you will, a recent graduate of a reasonably prestigious university, whiling away his early 20s, tooling around the city of his birth, the already decidedly odd New Orleans. No particular career aims, but nagged by the internal voice reminding him that he should probably find some. Living in the kind of squalor that only a girlfriendless early 20s male can create, much less thrive in. Wildly underemployed at a dead-end swing shift job that allows him to party at night with slightly younger, still unmatriculated college friends. 
Parents whose gentle encouragements to figure out something to do with themselves are becoming less gentle as the months pass. Oh, and somehow, in spite of all of this, he manages to be almost stunningly intellectually arrogant, with nothing at all to show for it. Yikes. That was harsh. Also fair. Fun fact, the job in question was, I shit you not, proofreading business cards for like seven bucks an hour on the swing shift. Yes, I was a college graduate. Yes, it was a good economy. Clearly, I could have found a job and started a career, but I didn't, for at least a couple years. I can't really explain why, except to say, live in the dream. That confession was included so you could understand, I had a lot of time on my hands. And most of my waking hours, given that I worked from early afternoon to 10 in the p.m., tended toward the nocturnal. So given my obsessions, which have remained remarkably constant in the ensuing nearly 30 years, that means I not only listen to just an inordinate amount of Art Bell's Coast to Coast show on my car's radio. You have the solemn word of the paranoid strain that we will finally do our big Art Bell extravaganza at some point during our next major topic, which is very broadly about UFOs. But now is not the time to peel the onion of Jesuit's AB fascination. No, this particular digression has more to do with the other weird shit I listened to in my car at the time. Oh, let me assure you, if you took a ride in mid to late 90s Jesuit's car, you were going to hear some weird shit. Abso-fucking-lutely. For example, during my college years, there was a local AM radio host who billed himself as Ron the Bounty Hunter. In other words, Ron Hunter. The guy always seemed like he was thrust into the role of evening conspiracy show host simply because it was the only slot available and he always seemed totally out of his element in long-form radio. I have been, to my shame, unable to find any audio of the man in action on WSMB-AM from the period I recall. Though in researching for this episode, I discovered he had a fascinatingly long and sordid past before I ever ran into him. In brief, he went from late 70s Chicago TV news anchor Wunderkind to New Orleans AM radio has-been over the course of 20 years of seemingly unremitting failure in the midst of which he was suspected, though cleared, in his wife's suicide, which transpired hours after she had called into her husband's radio show to seek advice from the therapist Ron was interviewing about the many sexual problems in their marriage. There's a Chicago Tribune How Have the Mighty Fallen article about the guy that you can and should Google, but for young Jesuit, he was just a sort of amateurish JFK assassination and anti-government conspiracy hack. The Pabst Blue Ribbon that would barely slake my conspiracy thirst as I whiled away the hours, waiting for the single malt scotch that appeared in my hand when the master signed on from his home broadcasting station in the high desert. From the high desert and the great American Southwest, I bid you all good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Wherever you may be in God's great universe. But Ron Hunter's unique backstory aside, the point is that back in the 1990s, there was enough interest in conspiracy theories to support a daily early evening radio show in a competitive and reasonably large urban market, however incompetently that show may have been executed. Besides second-rate conspiracists, there was a whole other lane of listening as well. As his friends quickly learned to their chagrin when bumming a ride. That is, the more specifically, avowedly fundamentalist religious content available to the discerning, ironic asshole radio listener. During the daytime hours, of course, there was the Christian rock station, from which I learned important lessons like, they don't serve breakfast in hell. Or that what we as a nation need are the old, old stories. Tell me 
or this succinct syllogism demonstrating, once and for all, that evolution just isn't true. Take that, modern science. But after graduation, my refined tastes turned toward the most batshit insane prophetic religious programming I could find. And in my market, the cream of the crop were Newswatch Magazine with David J. Smith and the Prophecy Club, hosted by Stan and Leslie Johnson. Each was absolutely dedicated to the proposition that the end was coming soon, like the next presidential administration soon, based on the way they talked, though nobody was dumb enough to pick a date like those 19th century fail prophets. Just trust me, though, there was no question these hosts would have been shocked at the time to learn that we were still chugging along in our satanic ways almost 30 years later. Let's examine each in turn. Stan Johnson of the Prophecy Club is the Ned Flanders of the eschatology world. I thought this way back in the 1990s when I had only heard him on the radio, simply because of the nasality of his vocal tone. But in researching this show and finally seeing a picture of the man himself, holy shit, the resemblance is uncanny. Look him up. I'm saying if you gave him a jaundiced complexion, Stan Johnson would be a shoe-in to deliver a few Hydley-ho neighborinos in a hypothetical live-action Simpsons movie. And by the way, we wouldn't put it past Disney to actually do that. The same site where I found Johnson's headshot diddly-oodly offers a capsule biography of how the man, and let's not forget his partner in prophecy, wife Leslie Johnson, got started in this racket. Short version, Stan was a humble businessman when in 1993 he started doing a periodic 15-minute prophecy show in his home market of Topeka, Kansas. Soon the response and demand was so strong that he quit his worldly efforts and turned instead to full-time ministry. In the years since I was a regular listener, Stan and Leslie have apparently founded their own church. You can safely assume Jesuit will attend services next time he's in the area. The main focus of the Prophecy Club is, well, why don't I let the man himself tell you from this 2015 episode? Essentially, the purpose of the Prophecy Club is to tell America that she is under judgment, that America will be attacked by Russia and will be defeated in the early days of World War III. The second point is to tell the world that you are in the last days and you are in the middle of the fulfillment of Bible prophecy, whether you know it or not or like it or not, and that if you want to have eternal life, you must stop sinning now, repent, and turn to Jesus with your whole heart the dedicated listener will very quickly also be reminded that the secondary purpose of the show is begging for money. Now, if that is a message that you can get behind, then I'm going to ask you to become a monthly supporter. Yes, we need your donations. We need them today. But more than we need them just today, we need them each month to stand with us. When you give to a ministry, then the Bible says that God will repay. So I'm going to pray that God right now, as you're hearing this, will speak to your heart to support us monthly and even to speak the amount for you to support monthly. Lord, I ask you to speak to the hearts of those people. So far, it sounds pretty much like every other televangelist I've ever had the misfortune to see or hear. 
Why are you bringing up this one in particular? First of all, because the show is positively obsessed with the Book of Revelation. And though the tenor of the 1990s shows, what I like to think of as the show's classic period... Oh, dear. The classic period definitely pointed toward the big numerical changeover to the year 2000 as the time when all the shit was going to go down. However, to give Stan and Leslie the credit they deserve, they've been able to keep the gravy train running all the way up to the present day, long after the mood of the nation moved on from believing the end of all things was around the corner. Part of this staying power comes down to the fact that God just keeps showing Stan neat new stuff. For example, here's a quote from the website relating exciting, if deeply confusing, relatively recent updates from the Almighty directly to our hero. In 2017, Stan memorized the book of Revelation in which he received 30 revelations and two visions. God showed him the word firstfruits is a secret door which links the Feast of Leviticus to the prophecies of Revelation, allowing the end-time events to be placed in chronological order. Finally, I had been placing end-time events in all kinds of orders, alphabetical, numerical, by cinematographer's last name, clockwise. As we can see, joining the Prophecy Club pretty much pays for itself, people. The core of the Johnsons' ministry is a series of prophecies delivered long ago by a now-dead, then-exiled Romanian named Dimitri Dudeman. I am not going to let Jesuit make poop jokes about this man's last name. Spoil sport. Anyway, as near as I can tell, Stan and co. are the only folks who take this guy seriously. And Stan's been hyping Dimitri's future predictions for close to 30 years now, so I owe it to you to provide at least a brief overview. Dudeman had been prophesying for decades when he came over to the U.S., but it's in exile that he received his big, earth-shaking message from an angel of the Lord about the future of America, and then passed it on to Stan to disseminate far and wide. Sorry to say, the news isn't good. No, indeedly doodly. It was the same voice, the same angel that had been speaking to him now for over 30 years. Dimitri said, why did you punish me? Why did you bring me to America? What did I do that was so rotten? Why did you bring me here? I have nowhere to lie my head. I can't understand anybody. I don't have any money. He said, Dimitri, I brought you here to this country because this country will burn. And he showed me all of California and the cities of California and Las Vegas. The angel said, you see what I've shown you? This is Sodom and Gomorrah. In one day, it will burn. He showed me another great city, and he said, do you know what city this is? And I said, no. He said, this is New York City. This also is Sodom and Gomorrah. And one day, it will burn. He said, I brought you to this country, Dimitri, because I want to wake up a lot of people. I love this country, and I love the people of this country, but this country will burn. I will make great healings among the American people. You will go to television stations, radio stations, and churches. Tell them everything I tell you, and don't try to hide anything, because if you try to hide anything, I will punish you, because America will burn. How is America going to burn exactly? The goddamn Ruskies, that's how. He said the Russian spies have discovered where the most powerful nuclear missiles are stored in America. He said it will start with an internal revolution in America started by the communists. Some of the people will start fighting against the government. The government will be busy with internal problems. Then from the oceans, Russia, Cuba, Nicaragua, Central America, Mexico, and two other countries which I cannot remember will attack. The Russians will bombard the nuclear missiles in America, and America will burn. 
This story was a tough sell even back in the 90s, when the Russians were a recently deposed international superpower. But Johnson is standing by this shit even now, when it's become especially obvious in the wake of the botched Ukraine invasion that if the Russians ever actually engaged in a straight-up fight with the U.S. Army, they'd last about 15 minutes. But you've got to admire Stan for sticking to his guns all these years, no matter how increasingly implausible this stupid story has become. Wait, he was talking about this back in the 90s when you were listening? Like, he was talking about this Dudamon guy? Dana, he has quoted that exact prophecy about the angel showing Dudamon the cities and then exactly how the Russians and their allies were going to take over on literally every episode I've ever heard. And in all that time, it's never dawned on him that a more sensible explanation would be that Dimitri got high as balls and caught the first half of a 3 a.m. TBS Superstation rerun of Red Dawn, then woke up convinced it had all been dictated to him by an angel. There are further insights. Apparently, the Lord has blessed America specifically because he sent Jews here. He said, I have blessed this country because of the Jews that are here. I have seven million Jews that are here. They haven't tasted war or persecution. And God has blessed them more than anyone else. But here again, the news on that front is bad, as it turns out. And instead of thanking God, they started sinning and doing wickedly. Their sins has reached the Holy One, and God will punish them with fire. You see, Israel doesn't recognize the Messiah because they place their trust on the power of the Jews in America. When God will hit America, all of the nations will be terrified. The prophesying continues as we follow the nefarious plans of the victorious anti-America, anti-God forces as they follow the familiar Revelation playbook. Then God will raise up China and Japan and many of the nations. They will defeat the Russians. They'll back the Russians to the gates of Paris, where they make a peace treaty. But they make the Russians their leader. Then, by the way, I think that's when they form a world government. Then all the nations, with all the Russians as their leader, go against Israel. It's not that they want to, but God makes them. That's the hook in the jaw, Ezekiel 38, verse 4. Israel doesn't have the help of the Jews in America anymore. And in their terror, when they see what is coming... They will call upon the Messiah. Messiah will come to help Israel. Then the church of God will meet him in the clouds. Did he say they attack Israel even though they don't want to? Yeah. God's chosen people have to get blowed up by enemies who don't even want to blow them up because prophecy. There's more to learn. Remember when our scholar Dr. Ehrman showed us definitively that Mystery Babylon in Revelation was clearly Rome? Surprise! Wrong! Why did he call it the Mystery Babylon? Tell them because all the nations of the world immigrated to America, and America accepted them. America accepted Buddha, the devil church, the sodomite church, the Mormon church, and all kinds of wickedness. America was a Christian nation, but instead of stopping them, they went after their gods. Because of this, he named it the Mystery Babylon. Now, all prophecy-focused evangelicals, in my pretty extensively experienced opinion, Y'all, he has listened to hundreds and hundreds of hours of the shit, voluntarily. Not to brag. In my experience, all prophecy folks are pretty touchy and self-defensive since so much of what they say never actually happens, and the Bible says that anyone who prophesies and it doesn't come true is a false prophet, which is inconvenient for those in this line of work. Luckily, though, we can be certain that Dudamon is the real deal for one very good reason. And what's that? 
Because he says an angel told him he would get a bucket of honey, and then he did get a bucket of honey. I would further note that Dudamon himself is the only witness to this B-spit-based verification. Wait, what? Now, so that you know that I truly have been sent by God, tomorrow at 9 o'clock, someone will come and give you a bed. At 10.30, someone will come and pay your rent. At noon, someone will bring you a car and a bucket of honey. He says, brothers, it happened exactly as the angel said. At 9 o'clock, someone rang my doorbell and said, I brought you a bed. I could not sleep all night long. God told me that you were from Romania and that you need a bed. Come and help me unload it. And at 10.30, someone else rang my doorbell and handed me a check for $500 and said, God told me to bring you $500. And at noon, someone rang my doorbell and handed me the keys to a car. I went and opened the car door. Sitting in the front seat was a bucket of honey. All exactly as God said. Before we move on to my other 1990s prophecy obsession, I do want to mention one last ad break that I heard at the end of this particular episode, which I simply have to share. It's like a lurid, super-fundamentalist version of the leering, you won't believe how shocking this shit is, marketing pioneered by fellow 1990s icon, the Girls Gone Wild, Mail Order, Girl Next Door series of softcore porn VHS tapes. Those of you who remember those commercials, listen to the following and see if you get the analogy. Shocking, amazing, heresy, and blasphemy. Using over 100 video clips, you will see large, well-known ministers making shocking statements contrary to the Bible. Not just simple doctrinal errors, but open, abomination, heresy, apostasy, even blasphemy. So bad, you'll have to see it to believe it. See some of your favorite, most popular pastors seduce you with lying signs and wonders. The biggest names teach a false Christ. Yes, it is true. Your mouth will fall open. God exposes the worst sins of the Bible in these DVDs called Error in the Church. Worse than the Old Testament, nation-killing sins in America today. You won't be disappointed. You'll be furious, beyond angry. I thank God that Leslie showed me these shocking errors, and I would never have known it or believed it if I had not actually seen it. This will keep Prophecy Club and you from falling into error. Don't miss it. The fantastic offer of error in the church. Call today and give a $50 gift, and we will immediately ship you the first three DVDs. Error in the church, 785 266 1112. Air in the church, 785 266 1112. Call today. The Prophecy Club was pretty sweet, but it wasn't the best of the best. That title goes to the incredibly strange broadcasts of Newswatch Magazine and its host slash preacher, David J. Smith. You can tell simply by comparing their theme songs that Newswatch is unbeatable. Here's the Prophecy Club's bouncy but rather generic opening. Oh, 
Welcome to the Prophecy Club. And here is a heavily edited version of the fucking four-minute-plus opening epic jam that kicked off each and every Newswatch magazine sermon. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives... The disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world? And he said, Now here's a prophecy, my friends, that in the latter days they'll come. It's in Matthew's 24, and it's right now at the door of our lives. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but these words will never pass away. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then shall the end come. Newswatch Magazine presents... The analysis of world news in the light of Bible prophecy with David J. Smith. David J. Smith doesn't have fucking time for your stupid introductions. He jumps straight into explaining how we can know for certain that this country is cursed. When you read Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 16 through the rest of the chapter, it shows undeniably that the nation would fall apart. There would be internal infiltration. There would be external vices that would be placed upon the nation. And that nation would eventually crumble and fall. I'll begin to unravel some of these things that are happening to the United States of America today because of those curses that have been placed upon this country. David J. Smith is what you would get if you fed an artificial intelligence every publication ever issued by the John Birch Society, followed by a pile of Bible prophecy and a bucket of Adderall. I knew fuck all about his background in the heady pre-internet days of my core obsession, but shout out to a thorough if rather GeoCities-looking website called Field Guide to the Wild World of Religion, which hipped me to a fascinating tidbit. Turns out David J. Smith was the one-time protege of none other than Herbert W. Armstrong. Who? You remember the guy from a little while back in this series of shows? who confidently predicted the end of the world like four times from the 1940s to the 70s, but was still on his shtick back in the 80s when we heard from him? Oh, yeah, vaguely. Well, David J. was the Padawan to Armstrong's Qui-Gon Jinn, till they had a falling out back in the 80s. According to the field guide, it's because Smith believed Armstrong's organization had been infiltrated by the evil Jesuits, like the Catholic Order, not the podcast host. 
Anyway, Smith and Newswatch magazine went independent, eventually coming to understand that in the last days, their ministry would be the gathering place for the Lord's elect. Meaning that for some reason, the Lord wants his favorite people to wait out the tribulation in a place called Waxahachie, Texas. I understand this is not interesting to anyone except me, and therefore I will refrain from showing you my Mint Collection DJS rookie card, even though it's like, really cool. Anyway, rather than explain or contextualize the ravings of the Dave Meister, I'm just going to stitch a bunch of excerpts together. How many clips do you have? Like a dozen? I can't believe you re-listened to so many hours of this garbage for the show. Oh, you don't understand, Dana. All of this shit, which was originally broadcast in 1996, so it's almost guaranteed that I heard it at the time, as I was so addicted to this show I probably should have been examined. Anyway... All of what you're about to hear, which hits on pretty much every single wacko anti-government religious conspiracy theory that made the decade so much fun for assholes like me, including specific references to the end coming in the year 2000, all of what you're about to hear, all of it, comes from one randomly chosen 90-minute episode. Seriously, it was just the first one I happened to look up on YouTube. This man is the Miles Davis of Conspiracy Prophesying. And I'm so glad I have the power to force all of you to listen to him. With no further ado then, David, do your thing. They're talking about everyone on earth, every government needs to be teaching and training, I call it brainwashing, their young people to become world citizens or global citizens. What is sustainable development? When you read all the literature put out by these people, it's nothing more than fancy words for the redistribution of the wealth of the world, just like the Marxists said in the Communist Manifesto, that they have to take from the rich and give to the poor to make everybody in the world equal. That's why they pass NAFTA. Not so that it would increase or build up Mexico, but so that it would redistribute the wealth from the United States to Mexico, lower our level of standing, and raise theirs in Mexico until we finally became equally poor. Quote, Campaigns to raise public awareness of the challenges of world citizenship must make use of the full range of media and the arts. What is Media, radio, television, everything that has to do with listening and hearing. So they're going to use the mass media where everybody comes in and parks themselves immediately after they come in from work and sits down, turns on the tube, and begins to watch. And little by little, everything is world citizenship, world this, world that. It's not the United States anymore. Watch closely and you'll see how subtly they use these subliminal advertisements in order to brainwash our mind into a world community. So Minnesota was the very first state and a mayor of that city was the very first one that declared their citizens to be citizens of the world. So am I making this up? Have I been paranoia when I've been preaching about Bible prophecy and the United States of America is about to surrender its sovereignty and we're going to go into a world government? I don't think so. 
How in the world could this man write that they would give into the hands of an international body control of the weather unless there are machinery that is in place today, discoveries by the Soviet Union and the United States, and they took it right out of Tesla's 900 patents in which they can control the weather to create weather war, drought famines at will, whether they can make hurricanes and tornadoes at will. They can create earthquakes wherever they want. Why would they say this? Unless it's a reality. And it is. They wanted to create a world currency. Does this sound like Revelation 13, verse 16 to 18 to you? Where no man will be able to buy or sell unless he has the mark no one will be able to buy or sell unless the world currency is in your possession. The United States of America is the number one contributor, yet the United Nations organization is run by anti-Christian, anti-God personnel. They're working for the dismemberment of the United States and to take our national sovereignty and to make a global religion in which Christianity would be merged with pagan religions. And if you weren't a part of the world religion, you would be an outcast from that system. To actually create the beast system and sustain it for the purpose of eventually killing some of us, encamping others in their concentration camps. I've talked many times about how they created AIDS, man-made virus in the laboratory. They created other types of viruses and biological and chemical weapons. This was a part of the lowering of the population and introducing man-made agents into society that our systems cannot reject. Notice what they said. The federal government considers people to be a biological resource that must be managed to protect the ecosystems. Did you know you're a biological resource? You're not a human being. That's why when they take over the world, they already have said that human beings will be work units. Right now in Austin, Texas, a man bought a piece of land, had one tree on it. He started to build an office. They said, nope, you can't. It comes under the Wetlands Act of the United Nations. They looked up in the file and said, this property says that there may sometime in the future be a bird that may about to become extinct and land and build a nest there. So we can't let you disturb the habitat. National legislation gives states police powers to control human activities. End of quote. You believe it doesn't exist? There it is. There is a government coming. They're going to own your property, my property. And if you want to go out and put a flower in the ground without personal written authorization from them, you can go to jail. The dumbed-down America that doesn't even know that international communism and perestroika was nothing more than a front so that they could retool themselves and prepare for the final push by the year 2000. And so they've lulled the United States of America to sleep. When you study their literature, you find out they believe that there is an individual called Lucifer who is overseeing the evolutionary progress of mankind. 
And now we're headed for the next phase of human evolution in which there will be the age of Aquarius, a golden age when there will be peace all over the world and Lucifer will send his light to the world. God is having a gathering himself and he's going to bring people together and they're going to be a light to this last generation before the year 2000 or during the last three and a half years. How he will focus and how he will achieve it is his business. He's God. He can do anything he wants. When this begins to happen and there is no food available, do you think they're going to be so loving and kind they're going to invite you into the White House to have dinner? I don't think so. I think they're going to gleefully watch us starve to death on the streets because they have to reduce the world's population and because it is Lucifer or Satan the devil, his religious belief that is being fostered upon the world and he has told the world that we're nothing but animals and it's survival of the fittest. And if you and I are not a part of the fittest, we don't survive and that we just die out. We'll turn back into something else. It's called pantheism. You don't really die. You just become a part of creation somewhere else. You're dust somewhere or plant food or become cat food. Who knows what? But you and I, we don't really die. We're just recycled. Please tell me you're finished. I am spent. But holy shit, did you hear all of that? NAFTA, the UN, world citizenship replacing national sovereignty, our old pal, the mark of the beast, AIDS was deliberately created, they're going to keep you from building on your land to save the environment and a bunch of fucking birds, communism's faking us out with this whole Soviet collapse thing and it's going to conquer the US by the year 2000, the hippie age of Aquarius is a devil plot, they're going to starve us or feed us cat food or some shit, the US is partnering with former Soviet states to train invading armies to enslave US citizens, and our old friend the harp station is going to shake rattle roll. See, like, what was it? Episode 6 or something. Anyway, the chemtrails and the harp episode for more on this Alaskan weather research station that the nuts think can cause earthquakes and hurricanes. It's in the RSS feed. So you understand why I was obsessed? To make a strained analogy to a brilliant recently Oscar-winning film, Newswatch magazine was the everything bagel at the center of my conspiracy universe, sucking in every stupid idea and spitting it back out in some sort of unstructured free jazz format. It was amazing. But of course, much like Woodstock, I guess you had to be there. I think I have dramatically overmade my point that the 90s were a fertile breeding ground for the conspiracist end of the world thinking that would eventually translate over the decades into ideas like the storm that QAnon fans keep expecting any day now. But the 90s were also the jumping off point for some other trends that feed directly into the paranoid Q worldview. The first of those was the concept of the New World Order. It's a 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 new world order. The idea of a new world order, or at least words and sentiments to that effect, have a long history in the U.S predating, in fact, the founding of the country. In the original sense in which the concept entered our young proto-nation's consciousness, it was the idea that the revolutionary struggle for self-government and representation was, in a sense, the struggle of all mankind, both present and future, to chart a new way for itself. Take, for example, this quote from Tom Paine's incredibly influential pre-revolutionary pamphlet, Common Sense. The cause of America is in a great measure the cause of all mankind. Tis not the concern of a day, a year, or an age. Posterity are virtually involved in the contest, and will be more or less affected, even to the end of time, by the proceedings now. 
These sentiments are thick on the ground in the era. Not to belabor, but here's old Ben Franklin. Our revolution is an important event for the advantage of mankind in general. This excitement about inaugurating a new paradigm for humanity as a whole drove Charles Thompson, who had served as secretary for the Continental Congress and who co-designed the Great Seal of the United States, featuring that eye floating above a pyramid that has freaked out generations of conspiracy types. Yes, and perhaps the only thing that freaks them out more than that graphic are the two slogans that Thompson added to the seal. Anuit Keptis, which roughly translates to Providence Approves of Our Undertaking, and the more germane to our purposes, Novus Ordo Seclorum. Let me guess. A new world order? Close. It's more like a new order of the ages. But certainly that distinction is mostly lost on conspiracists. These mottos didn't draw any ire, though, until we reached the 20th century, when the increasing influence of the United States and its eventual superpower status ended up embroiling our once very domestically focused government and populace in the affairs of the world at large. We got some useful information out of ur-conspiracy jester Robert Anton Wilson's Encyclopedia of Conspiracy Topics, Everything is Under Control, which traces the term back to the 19-teens, when it was used to describe the views of American diplomat and advisor to President Wilson, Colonel Edward M. House. House, whose military rank was honorary, nonetheless had the ear of Wilson and heavily influenced that man's decision to push for a League of Nations in the wake of World War I. It's also true that House believed in a unified world government as a goal that human societies should work toward, though the total failure of the Wilson administration and House's own efforts to get the United States to join the very League that Wilson had proposed could maybe be seen as a sign that any conspiracy you want to allege House was attempting was not exactly a major threat to American sovereignty. Though, of course, the conspiracy believers think it was only a 30-year pause and that the U.S. membership in the post-World War II United Nations is a fulfillment of House's evil plans to form a God-hating, one-world, mark-of-the-beast government. And certainly, they have some fodder to feed that point of view. For example, the socialist-leaning writer H.G. Wells, famous for his dystopia of hedonism and eugenics, Brave New World, was so horrified by the rise of Nazis that as World War II dawned, he wrote a nonfiction pay-in to the idea of a unified world titled, well, guess. The term appeared often enough in the intervening decades to keep it alive as the object of various paranoid observers' greatest apprehensions about the political future. But for our era, the real jumping-off point for New World Order fever was a speech given by George Bush. Oh, that totally makes sense. Launching the Iraq War, overseeing a financial crisis, losing to a charismatic young Democrat. He must have been a perfect foe for the conspiracy theorists, especially since he was in charge during 9-11. No, sorry, not that one. Though weirdly, everything except the 9-11 part actually applies to both. I mean, the early 90s recession wasn't exactly a crisis, but on some level their presidencies are weirdly similar. Anyway, no, the villain of the conspiracist's fever dreams isn't the amiable warmonger doofus, but rather the cultured former VP and head of the CIA, George Herbert Walker Bush. And specifically, this one phrase he uttered during a speech to the Joint Houses of Congress a month after Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990. A new partnership of nations has begun, and we stand today at a unique and extraordinary moment. The crisis in the Persian Gulf, as grave as it is, also offers a rare opportunity to move toward an historic period of cooperation. Out of these troubled times, our fifth objective, a new world order, can emerge, a new era, freer from the threat of terror, stronger in the pursuit of justice, and more secure 
in the quest for peace. You might want to tell them what day he gave that speech, Jesuit. Oh, it was hmm, September 11th. And of course, conspiracists have feasted on that bush-to-bush coincidence for the past two decades plus. But in the 1990s, Bush's phrase here and his repeated declaration that a new world order was in the offing for the peaceful countries who joined the U.S. in opposing Iraq's invasion. And by extension, we're willing to send over forces to drive the Iraqis out of Kuwait. It's clear by context that he's talking about what amounts to a more cohesive global response to threats, led by the U.S., that would finally allow peaceful nations to prosper economically together in the wake of the collapse of the former boogeyman, i.e. the Soviet Union. His idea is that by crushing Saddam Hussein's aggression, the big players of the world can make it clear that they're not going to put up with any of these penny anti-wars of aggression from smaller states now that there was, in essence, only one superpower who, along with its allies, controlled the world stage. An optimistic humanist might say the Gulf War military coalition was formed to oppose the subjugation of an independent nation. Someone with a more cynical eye focused on economics might call this making the world safe for neoliberal foreign policies and the expansion of multinationalism capitalism in a global consumer arena. Take your pick. But it didn't matter what H.W. said, or what the heads of the nations he was addressing understood about it. What matters to us is how this phrase sounded to the anti-government stalwarts. Unavoidable conspiracy theorist and independent researcher That was a pretty snide use of the phrase independent researcher for someone who, when you get down to it, is just an independent researcher with a podcast. Touché, unicorn. Regardless, the once indefatigable and ubiquitous Jim Mars, who until his death was certainly one of the most prolific conspiracy authors on the planet, relates one version of the conspiracy theories that immediately sprung up around Bush Sr.'s use of the phrase New World Order in his 2000 book, where he related a theory espoused by two other independent researchers. Jonathan Vankin and John Whalen, if for some reason you're keeping track. I'll spare you the details. But, of course, there's the normal sort of theorizing by unsupported juxtaposition of unrelated facts. For example, Mars notes that Bush Sr. became more belligerent in his statements about the invasion after meeting with then-PM of Britain, Maggie Thatcher, who then is immediately noted as a frequent attendee at Bilderberger meetings, which has nothing to do whatever with how and whether she influenced Bush's thinking on the issue. The main conspiracy theorizing, though, comes down to the idea that Bush all but gave Saddam an engraved invitation to invade, but then slapped him down as part of a big plan to blackmail the Saudis for protection money and to defend his son W's oil interests in the country of Kuwait. Or something. Honestly, none of this holds together very well. Not that it matters to anyone who believes in it. But not everyone focused on the first Gulf War as the birthplace of the New World Order. There were those who stood by the Bircher line, still strongly suspecting that this whole USSR collapse thing was one big fake-out. Yeah, it wasn't just David J. Smith and Newswatch magazine who thought the commies were going to come back heavy in the third act. But it wasn't even just right-wingers who thought Bush's nasal declaration of this new global era didn't exactly portend a future of sunshine and rainbows. Left-wing activists were quick to identify the phrase as some happy, crappy bullshit slogan for an American establishment that was eager to impose our system, especially our economics, on the rest of the world. WTO protesters, including at the famous Year 2000 battle in Seattle, would decry the ravages of the New World Order, for example. And closer to the time of the speech, anarchist punk elder statesman Jello Biafra, never one to shy away from a good quote, had this to say after Bush's speech. Even the most bush-happy, flag-suckling jackass knows deep down inside that something is wrong. America is over, and everyone knows it. The New World Order has a dying empire odor, 
and changing the channel ain't gonna make this go away. Wow. How amazing that we were able to get Jello himself into our humble studio to record that. Even though it sounded a little more like Fred Schneider from the B-52s, if it really comes down to it. Jello Biafra Uberalis. That's what we always say. And speaking of seminal underground rock acts of the 80s and 90s, and lest we forget, Ministry turned out an absolute slab of an anti-NWO anthem back in 92, complete with a guest verse by the then-president himself. Next, of course, the moderate Republican was replaced in 93 with a moderate Democrat, and while liberal and progressive coalitions in the Democratic Party bemoaned Clinton's willingness to adopt conservative policies on economic issues like welfare, and organized labor questioned the young president's support of NAFTA, the nascent Patriot movement kicked into overdrive, sure that Bill Clinton was a stalking horse for the globalist, socialist takeover of the United States. The New World Order as a conspiracist concept is as slippery to define as any other all-encompassing, globe-spanning, world domination threat. It means different things to different people. The only thing that tie all of these nebulous concepts of the New World Order together are that it's bad, and that the Democrats are definitely behind it. Yeah, take for example, famous televangelist and occasional wannabe politician, Pat Robertson. Of 700 Club TV show fame. Per Daniel Pipes in his seminal book, Conspiracy, Robertson laid it all out in his 1991 The New World Order. In it, he suggests two potential scenarios, one in which Europe takes over the U.S. by instituting a single world currency and bank to steal America's wealth. He provides evidence of this plot via the sort of bog-standard financial conspiracies that longtime listeners of this show are used to. You know, global bangers, who are definitely not stand-ins for international Jews, had Lincoln murdered, got the income tax passed, and established the evil evil Federal Reserve. Robertson's second scenario, Pipes notes, is much uglier and ends with the standard sort of Lucifer-led one-world government under control of devil worshippers, yada yada. And of course, it's not only megalomaniacal TV preachers who think they have the New World Order plot dead to rights. Once again, plumbing the depths of my Kindle Unlimited subscription, I found some modern-day NWO theorists who can explain it all, as long as by it all, you don't expect any solid definitions, evidence, or specifics. The authors of Battle Hymn, Revelations of the Sinister Plan for a New World Order, for example, give us this bog-standard global takeover scenario. The journey you are about to begin will take you through myriad aspects related to the plans and deeds that are intended to create a new world order of one government, one justice system, and one religion, all under the complete control of an unelected elite. This small cabal of powerful men will rule from the shadows through selected agents, posing as political leaders who will do their bidding. They will have the ability to control populations through propaganda, fear, and if necessary force, owing to their empire over the press, the police, the politicians, the judges, and the military. Okay, but how exactly is this going to work, you might ask? I mean, how, in an age of fractured media, will any group gain total propaganda control? If the U.S. has closely contested election after election, with any victorious party governing by a razor-thin margin, how is this conspiracy going to drive us toward a unified one-world government goal? Maybe Michael Thomas Hayes has more to tell us via his post-pandemic take from Rise of the New World Order, Book Series Update and Urgent Status Report, Volume 1. 
We are in a bad way in terms of losing our country, and things are going to get way worse fast. This is a red alert status update. We got a very rough road ahead of us. We've got an intentionally released man-made bioweapon on one side, and the empowered FEMA to deal with it, and the diabolical proponents of the New World Order who released the bioweapons on the other side, and there is nowhere to run unless you have a rocket ship to Mars, so buckle up. Friendly warning. Parsing the grammar of that paragraph may prove fatal. One more? Yeah, probably one more. So let's hear from Ramtha, the 35,000-year-old entity channeled through human woman Jay-Z Wright. If you're blessedly unaware of this New Age scam, Ms. Knight has for more than 30 years served as a spiritual conduit for this definitely real figure she calls Ramtha, who takes over her body and relates wisdom that sounds suspiciously, these days at least, like pro-Trump, pro-QAnon blather. And lucky you, Ramtha has laid down some truth about the coming New World Order, and Dana's going to share it with all of you now. When the one world government and the idealism of the Greymen go forward full thrust and the debit card is issued upon the collapse of world monetary systems, your constitution and bill of rights will be restructured for the new world order and what you know this day in your time will fall into antiquity. That is the plan, but it doesn't necessarily mean it will happen. Well, that's a relief. It's not necessarily going to happen. Otherwise, that sounds like a totally realistic scenario we should all be worried about. We found a fascinating discussion of this topic in a book by Michael Barkoon, emeritus professor at Syracuse University, whose work specialized in the nexus of religion and violence. Back in 03, he published an overview of the role of conspiracies in American life with a special focus on the preceding decade. That book, Culture of Conspiracy, offers a look back at the way that NWO fears interlinked with millenarian anxiety and found their personification in these sinister but largely apocryphal flying machines. In case you're too young to know this, Conspiracists were absolutely obsessed in the 1990s with the idea that unmarked military helicopters, painted jet black, were frequently seen hovering in the sky near sites where believers suspected evildoers were plotting. For example, sites for NWO enthusiasts believed that FEMA were building secret prison camps designed to round up rebellious patriots when they made their big move. Or near the underground bunkers where the elites would live during the power-consolidating war they were about to perpetrate in secret or around places like Area 51, where it was alleged that they were testing out new technologies for control and intimidation. Essentially, these whirlybirds were the boogeymen of the NWO believer, a semi-credible spooky story to imagine and share with other believers to help them visualize and tremble at the vastness of the forces arrayed against them. Barkun begins by reiterating the thesis that, as the Cold War enmity between the US and USSR crumbled and the latter fell apart, and I'm quoting here, the New World Order allowed its devotees to rebuild their Manichaean worldview in a new venue. Did you recite that just to make your listeners feel like you didn't waste your time earlier in the series when you digressed extensively on the subject of Manichaeanism? That wasn't the only reason, no. It's also a neat quote. He goes on to elaborate, New World Order theorists put flesh on the old trope's bones throughout the decade, getting more specific about who exactly was involved in what was previously a sort of amorphous globalist threat. You'll be shocked to know that apparently the Council of Foreign Relations and Trilateral Commission, those old John Birch targets, are the ones who get the blame. 
They also identified specific plans and preparations this cabal was engaged in, and it's here that the black helicopters become important, serving as a tangible demonstration of the power and secrecy of the conspiracy itself. Now, to give credit to the black helicopter and sisters, it's not like they're claiming something that's outside the realm of reason. I mean, helicopters exist, militaries exist, and they have lots of helicopters. Some helicopters are painted black. And to be more generous, the government and military have sometimes, some might argue, frequently, okay, frequently, done some heinous shit to innocent people based on a vague notion of national security. And we're sure they'll keep doing so into the future. So it's not exactly flat-earth-level delusion to think that some secret branch of the government is tasked with preparing for eventualities, like widespread civil unrest, and that they conduct many of the exercises and strategies related to this eventuality out of the public eye. And we know this because it's fucking obvious. I mean, we all remember when Trump threatened to invoke the Insurrection Act against protesters a few years ago, right? Well, the Insurrection Act is a real thing. And FEMA, the National Guard, and other agencies, both civilian and military, obviously have plans in place to respond to scenarios where civil unrest becomes a major issue. I mean, famously, the Pentagon plans for wars with any other nation on Earth, including Canada. He's not kidding. Back in the 1930s, military brass was concerned enough about the possibility of the UK and Canada joining forces to invade, however unlikely that scenario was, that they drew up a formal plan of attack. So watch out, hosers. So the branches of government we know about have plans for all eventualities that they recognize. It's a sure bet that there are some secret groups that have secret plans for even weirder shit that might happen embedded within those branches. So on the face of it, fear of law enforcement and maybe even military actions against, for example, armed militia groups back in the 1990s was not crazy in and of itself. But while the idea of a new world order was more than a half century old in the 90s, the idea of concentration camps, plans to re-educate the recalcitrant through mind control, and black helicopters as the sinister enforcers of the plot were of more recent vintage. Specifically, these ideas all traced back to the paranoia, however justified, of the left-wing radicals who found themselves in the government's crosshairs back in the 70s. This was the era of the Church Commission, covered in our historical political conspiracy series, when Americans suddenly learned that a secret part of the Internal Security Act of 1950 authorized the military to detain citizens in the event of an emergency, and that pursuant to that plan, local and federal law enforcement, working with the Army, had long since begun developing plans and exercises to deal with this potential future scenario. During the Church Commission era, the government's concern was laser-focused on the various armed, radical, left-wing movements like the Black Panthers and the Weathermen. And the goddamned hippies. But as time went on, these orders giving the federal government broad peacekeeping and civil disturbance-quelling powers eventually began scaring the shit out of the growing number of right-wing radicals in the late 80s and early 90s. And of course, the more conspiracy-minded argued that if plans existed, then clearly the evil NWO socialist anti-American bureaucrats were conspiring to bring about precisely the scenario that would invoke those powers, thus allowing the plans to be enacted leading inevitably to the enslavement of the free people of the United States and the crushing of all patriotic dissent. In other words, the plans were not drawn up in order to deal with imagined potential future emergencies. Instead, the conspirators figured out exactly what they would need in order to leverage a pre-planned attack into a wholesale rounding up of dissident militia types, autocratic takeover of a free country, end of the world, big brother, 1984, yada yada. 
But once the conspiracists came to that conclusion, the obvious next assumption was that if they're going to kick off the plan soon, obviously the concentration camps and re-education center construction must be well underway, and the fleets of black helicopters had to be fueled up, trained mercenary UN crews at the ready, to swoop down on rural America, bagging and zip-tying whoever they didn't immediately slaughter. Right, so skipping a few steps. The existence of the plans themselves was evidence that the conspiracy was ready to strike. As Barkun notes, in the wake of Oklahoma City in 1995, a cultural moment where suddenly everybody in the U.S. became briefly as obsessed with the thinking of right-wing militia loons as a young Jesuit already was, the idea of black helicopters was suddenly everywhere. We played you some audio from militia leaders, including Norm Olson, head of the Michigan militia, which was the one that got the most ink at the time, back when they were in front of Congress in the 90s. That was way back in episode four, if you're interested. But more recently, we stumbled upon a fantastic clip from Michael Moore's all-but-forgotten TV series, TV Nation, which, for my money, is the best work the guy ever did. In one episode, the lumbering documentarian visited militia leader Olson at the latter's house, where the two baked a cake together and tried to hash out their political differences. As you can hear, the type of New World Order conspiracies that we're discussing were front and center in Olson's thinking, including conspiracies about the OKC bombing itself. Why do you think Oklahoma City happened? I think perhaps that there, there is a conspiracy afoot. Do you think the government was involved in blowing up the Oh, yes. Oh, you do? Yes. It was supposed to have gone off at 6 a.m. before the, before the building, building was occupied. Then it would have been a very powerful political statement. Here's yeah. my question. Tim McVeigh. As soon as he was arrested, he said, I have had a chip implanted in my buttocks when I was in the service. He claimed that he was mind-controlled. The stuff out of James Bond is real. Norm sure had a lot of theories. Foreign troops are training on U.S. soil. Uh, true. Vince Foster was murdered. True. The CIA controls the nightly news as well as popular sitcoms such as The Nanny and Friends. Only Peter Jennings and the staff of, a of ABC and Time Warner. Barkun notes that much of the helicopter mythology dates back to the shortwave radio broadcasts of one Mark from Michigan. Among this 90s-era sage's pronouncements was that fleets of midnight black whirlybirds constantly patrolled the U.S.-Canada border serving as support for the huge number of U.N. troops who were, even then, already stationed in the U.S., ready to swoop down, arrest the patriots en masse, and declare martial law and enforced globalization of the U.S. government and economy. He was another one who insisted that the Russians were just pretending to be a total mess at the end of the 90s, using their supposed disarray to lure U.S. and other policymakers into a trap. To quote Mark himself, by the year 2000, America will be merged into a socialist new world order, and the world will be split into three functional divisions, European, North American, and the Pacific Rim power structure. Sounds like somebody reread 1984 one too many times, doesn't it? We've always been at war with Eurasia. And before we leave this subject, remember, most of the time when you see helicopters, they're some distance away. And a lot of them are painted in dark colors, green, gray, other black adjacent shades. So people who were convinced that unmarked black helicopters were a growing threat to the American way of life could, if they paid attention, see distant choppers that kind of fit the bill, maybe, several times a week. Since helicopters are involved in everything from rural firefighting, to medical transport, to cargo hauling, to inspecting power lines. In other words... If you're looking with your naked eyes for helicopters that might be black and might be unmarked, you'll see plenty. And if you think they're harbingers of doom, the fact that nobody around you is freaking out might just freak you out even more. It is the new order. It is the new 
Next up, we have the strange case of a leaked 1960s-era document that seems to prove that the government is planning massive changes to our way of life. Just the kind of thing the New World Order, and eventually QAnon, would tell you the deep state had in store for all of us. It's called The Report from Iron Mountain. Iron Mountain. Sounds like a men's rights retreat. It does indeed, Unicorn. But Iron Mountain is a real place. And it's the kind of place that really gets the blood pumping, if you're a certain kind of records and archives nerd. It was established back in 1951 in Boyers, Pennsylvania, when Herman Naust, the mushroom king of the Hudson Valley, gave up on trying to turn a defunct New York State iron mine into a mycology farm, deciding instead to get into the underground document protection business. He purchased a former limestone mine in western PA and offered a brand new kind of service to the public, storing cans of information in a climate-controlled document paradise for $250 a year. Since then, Iron Mountain has turned into a publicly traded data management company with an emphasis on cloud storage centers throughout the world. But they still maintain underground facilities, like the one in Boyers, where everything from images owned by Bill Gates to Pentagon plans for a post-nuclear scenario to Abraham Lincoln memorabilia has been stored for decades. We should acknowledge that the info for that capsule biography of the place came to us from the nicely maintained Butler County, PA Historical Society website. We also found this story from a local news station that was given a tour of the normally highly secure facility. Behind these doors sit amazing cultural treasures. Hundreds of thousands of movies. We do business with the majority of the motion picture film studios uh, in California. So they store the original movies with you? Correct. Ann Hartman took us into the refrigerator that houses the Corbis Image Collection owned by Bill Gates. 27 million mixed prints, negatives, glass plates, and slides. Royalty from all around the world is in, is in these print files here. This is the International News Photo Collection, originally belonged to William Randolph Hearst. Here we have um, rock bands and rock groups. It's almost impossible to wrap your mind around the size of this place. I mean, this vault alone is 25,000 square feet. There are 15 of them just like this. 100,000, 200, the largest is 222,000 square feet. One vault. One vault, the size of, uh, of a shopping center. Anytime a client needs a document, a microfilm or a microfish, the Iron Mountain staff retrieves it. But the reason we bring all this up is the secure facility at Iron Mountain is also the primary location where a secret group of prominent civilians were brought together by the government in 63 and tasked with planning for an unprecedented, previously unthinkable, scenario. Oh, the threat of total annihilation in the face of nuclear war? No, they knew about that one. That's a cinch. Dig some caves, store up dry rations, create underground agriculture, ratio of 10 women to every man. The proper breeding techniques and the ratio of, say, 10 females to each male, I would guess that they could then work their way back to the present gross national product within, say, 20 years. No problem. This other problem was a really tough nut to crack. What to do if, for the first time, humanity ever achieved lasting peace on Earth? You're saying peace on Earth is a problem? An unprecedented problem, Dana. Luckily, we had the best minds working on it the kind of dudes they had studying the Lost Ark. We have top men working on it right now. Who? Top men. 
The result of their labors was supposed to remain secret, but ended up published in 1967 by one of the anonymous participants, causing a furor as horrified U.S. citizens realized their government was so afraid of ending war, they had undertaken a study to deal with the nightmare that is a peaceful world. Wow, really? I've never heard of any of this. That's because most of that stuff I just said about the reaction was a lie. When it was first published, the foreword by satirist Leonard Lewin insisted that he was publishing the notes of an anonymous John Doe who was part of the Iron Mountain group and who believed their findings should be known to the public. But even then, it was pretty clear the whole thing was an arch joke. When he returned the call, a man answered immediately and told Doe, among other things, that he had been selected to serve on a commission of the highest importance. Its objective was to determine, accurately and realistically, the nature of the problems that would confront the United States if and when a condition of permanent peace should arrive, and to draft a program for dealing with this contingency. But for those who were too square to get it, Lewin spilled the beans in 1972, admitting he had written the thing as a satire of the bloodless Cold War bureaucratic mindset, equipped to handle perpetual war, but stymied dealing with anything that would actually improve the cause of humanity. And by the way, an attentive reader wouldn't have needed Lewin's confession. While the report is a masterclass in aping the style of government memoranda to deliver a Swiftian satire of the military-industrial complex mindset, there are plenty of hints along the way that the whole affair isn't exactly on the up-and-up. Yeah, man. It's a sophisticated hippie satire of the war machine pigs, you dig? It's a compliment to brilliant satirical classics of the era like Dr. Strangelove, and is clearly inspired by the same scenario the bizarre situation that mid-century Americans found themselves in, where they were assured that the best way to ensure peace and stability was to keep building bigger nuclear weapons and invading third-world countries. Because otherwise, the communists would win. You don't want the communists to win, do you, you fucking pinko? Exactly. Now, what do you think the conspiracy theorists did with this clever satire? Um, insist that it wasn't satire at all, but a real document, and the powers that be were deliberately covering up the leak of a super-secret plan that exposed their nefarious schemes? You're the winner, Dana. The prize is, I don't know, personal satisfaction. In reference to our current topic, believers have insisted for decades, and in fact, to this day, that this is our best-ever peek into the thinking and plans of the New World Order. In other words, the right-wingers adopted the left-wing satire of the war economy as gospel once the national security state's Eye of Sauron had moved off the lefties and fixed on their militias as the key domestic political threat. And of course, they can't be swayed from this conviction, no matter how obvious the satire. Hilarious. And when I say the satire is obvious, this quote is from the foreword to the report itself. I should state, for the record, that I do not share the attitudes toward war and peace and life and death and survival of the species that is manifested in the report. Few readers will. In human terms, it is an outrageous document. But it does represent a serious and challenging effort to define an enormous problem. And it explains, or certainly appears to explain, aspects of American policy otherwise incomprehensible by the ordinary standards of common sense. This admonishment, that the conclusions drawn by the Iron Mountain Group are the only possible way to explain various aspects of U.S. policy in the light of common sense, sounds suspiciously like Jonathan Swift. In case you forgot your high school English lit survey, Swift, surveying the wretched state of the paupers in his native Ireland, innocently suggested that his idea of selling Irish toddlers as meat to feed the wealthy British was a sensible man trying to solve an intractable problem caused by the stupidity and greed of those around him. Knowing that greed, irresponsibility, and the venality of his fellow man is not likely to change. 
His essay's title, A Modest Proposal, even matches the banality of The Iron Mountain Report. In other words, this is not just satire. This is really good satire. Which means, of course, that its wit will often go unnoticed by the more motivated reasoners who encounter it, and that therefore, inevitably, like Swift's brilliant broadsides, it will often be taken at face value. So, what's in this little Cold War gem? First, Lewin's anonymous narrator details the appalling problems that will ensue when the arms industry is no longer needed due to the looming threat of world peace. Those problems being? Come on, think about it. What are we going to do with all of the carefully tuned scientific, technical, and other expertise that is uniquely trained and focused on figuring out better, flashier, more effective ways of blowing up our enemies? And then multiply that problem by the weapons and defense industries of all the other nations of the world. You're going to have a lot of highly skilled people with very dangerous talents who are both unemployed and restless, which, of course, poses a big problem. Probably, in fact, a more realistic problem for a post-9-11 age than Lewin could even dream up for his Cold War-era satire. Also, and this is prime Vietnam-era stuff, what are we going to do with all the excess population whose numbers had so recently been kept under control thanks to the draft taking a big swath of the U.S.'s less connected, less wealthy male population with an average age of 19? Wait, the average draft age was 19? In Vietnam? Yes, it was. Seriously, the average age? Correct. Because nobody under 18 could be drafted, right? And yet the average age was 19, meaning that nearly everyone that your government was sending into that meat grinder was under the age of 21, probably. That stat was so widely known back in the 80s, there was a hit single on that exact topic. In World War II, the average age of the combat soldier was 26. In Vietnam, he was 19. In, 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 in Vietnam, he was 19. In, 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 in Vietnam, he was 19. That was very 80s. I didn't say it was a good song, just that it was a pretty big global hit, Ms. Lester Bangs. I'm forced to acknowledge that Paul Hardcastle, the composer, may have gotten his number wrong, according to other sources. Point being, though, there's no question that the draft had the effect of channeling a bunch of youth, often those without many connections or family wealth, into a vicious human thresher that would reduce their raw numbers, and also arguably keep them from causing trouble at home for the years they were overseas. Anyway, that's the point that Lewin is anonymously making with this bit of the report, where he notes that many listeners will be a bit squeamish at the conclusion that there is in fact an optimum number of war deaths per year when calculating the equations for a healthy, dynamic society. Few readers will not be taken aback, at least, by a few lines in the report's conclusions, repeated in its formal recommendations, that suggest that the long-range plannings and budgeting of the optimal members of lives to be destroyed annually in overt warfare is high on the group's list of priorities for governmental action. I cite these few examples primarily to warn the general reader what he can expect. The statesmen and strategists for these eyes the report was intended obviously need no such protective admonition. That was from the foreword, but what's even more fun is hearing how the bloodless bureaucratese of the main body of the text renders essentially the same idea. As long as any society must contemplate even a remote possibility of war, it must maintain a maximum supportable population, even when so doing critically aggravates an economic liability. This is paradoxical in view of war's role in reducing excess population, but it is readily understood. War controls the general population level. But the ecological interest of any single society lies in maintaining its hegemony vis-a-vis other societies. 
nations desperately in need of increasing unfavorable production consumption ratios are nevertheless unwilling to gamble their possible military requirements of 20 years hence for this purpose. Unilateral population control, as practiced in ancient Japan and in other isolated societies, is out of the question in today's world. Please note that there's no audiobook version he could find, so he used a YouTube rendition apparently recorded by a conspiracy sympathizer. In other words, about all the mispronunciations, we know. The report offers other suggestions for confronting this terrifying peaceful future. For example, reintroduce slavery, pointing out that this would require relatively few changes to the existing military code of discipline. So, just adopt universal conscription and you're halfway there. Lewin also points out that the end of war has implications for our scientific, engineering, and even aesthetic innovations in the future, since so many of these in the past have been in some way tied to some war effort or another. We need look no further than the Cold War space race or the Defense Department's support for innovations like the Internet to see validation of this point. Now we get to the part that really freaks out the Patriot set. Again, this thing is obviously even admittedly, a piece of satire. But of course, that only reinforces in the mind of the anti-New World Order patriot that this is a real document that was accidentally leaked by the conspiracy, and therefore its conclusions are exactly those that the conspirators are using to create their nefarious plans. So, sections like this one are unquestionable evidence that the New World Order and its socialist unification of the globe under a single satanic government is nearing completion. We have already pointed out that the end of the war means the end of national sovereignty, and thus the end of nationhood as we know it today. But this does not necessarily mean the end of nations in the administrative sense, and internal political power will remain essential to a stable society. The emerging nations of the peace epoch must continue to draw political authority from some source. A number of proposals have been made governing the relationship between nations after total disarmament. All are basically judicial in nature. They contemplate institutions more or less like a world court, or United Nations, but vested with real authority. It might be argued that a well-armed international police force operating under the authority of such a supernatural court could well serve the function of an external enemy. This, however, would constitute military operation. Like the inspection scheme mentioned, and uh, like them, would be inconsistent with the premise of an end-to-the-war system. They think that a wall of bureaucrat ease is a threat? Absolutely. If you parse it out, it suggests the end of war will require governments to unify their authority into an international court or police system. In other words, a new world order. And even worse, it goes on to state, It is possible that a variant of the unarmed forces idea might be developed in such a way that its constructive or i.e. social welfare activities could be combined with an economic threat of sufficient size and credibility to warrant political organization. An effective political substitute for war would require alternate enemies, some of which might seem equally far-fetched in the context of the current war system. It may be, for instance, that gross pollution of the environment can eventually replace the possibility of mass destruction by nuclear weapons as the principal apparent threat to the survival of the species. Poisoning of the air and of the principal source of food and water supply is already well advanced, and at first glance would seem promising in this respect. It constitutes a threat that can be dealt with only through social organization and political power. But from present indications, it will be a generation to generation, a half before environmental pollution, however severe, will be sufficiently menacing on a global scale to offer a possible basis for solution. It is true that the rate of pollution could be increased selectively for this purpose. In fact, the mere modifying of existing programs for the deterrence of pollution could speed up the process enough to make the threat credible much sooner. But the pollution problem has been so widely publicized in recent years that it seems highly improbable that a program of deliberate environmental poisoning could be implemented in a politically acceptable manner. Oh, I get it. The eco-fascists are going to use environmental catastrophe, in other words, the fake global warming scare, to implement an external threat to replace war and the authority of the U.S. government. Indeed. 
red meat, if you'll pardon the expression, for the freaks who had already determined, against all available evidence, that the whole global warming and general pollution threat have been engineered by domineering commies. The report concludes by arguing that, whatever we decide on as a solution, it must be as wasteful of money, resources, and human capital as possible. After all, it would be a pretty shitty replacement for the grotesque waste that is war otherwise. He then lists all the quote-unquote wasteful things we could do with that money. Universal health insurance, medical advancements, universal education, cars and housing for all. Of course, until we get rid of war, these sorts of wasteful spending programs will always appear far too expensive. But in the absence of war, the report concludes, the powers that be may have to bite the bullet and opt for just these sorts of waste to keep the masses pacified and the economy humming along. But what, a putative Cold War policymaker might ask, would we do after we solve these social problems with wasteful spending? Thankfully, the report points out, there's always space, which has the benefit of being an infinite hole in which to jettison people, things, and money. This thing is hilarious, albeit very, very dry. So, let's hear the totally chill read that New World Order theorists have on this not particularly influential, yet charming in its way pamphlet, written 50 plus years ago. Welcome to the report from Iron Mountain. This report is something you would never believe unless you read it. But you also have to understand the mindset of the government that requested it. And that is one of the most important features of this video. The objective was to determine accurately and realistically the nature of the problems that would confront the United States if and when a condition of permanent peace should arrive. This is one of the key elements of the report because we are to go under, under the Antichrist system, an era of supposed peace. And this is what this whole program was about, if and when a condition of permanent peace should arise. That means that peace, in reality, equals world socialism, as we will find out as we journey through this report. And they were to draft a program for dealing with this contingency. In other words, this is a planned situation. In 1961, Public Law 87-297 was passed, paving the way for the United States to be merged with the United Nations. It's a very crucial law in that it disarms the American citizen in violation of the clear intent of the Constitution, which calls for our right to bear arms to maintain our free state. And by the calling for the disarming of all Americans, of course, we lose our free state and we are submerged, actually, into a slave state. Uh, the disarming was to be done by a period of gradual disarmament, and as they were disarming, the United Nations would be built up with a powerful standing army. The evidence suggests a CFRTC Bilderberg connection, the rich men of the earth, the merchants of Babylon, the killers of the just, according to the Holy Scriptures. concerns itself with the globalist agenda and the conclusions reached have been advanced by these groups every one of the conclusions in uh, in the Iron Mountain report have been advanced by these groups Committee of 300 the CFR TC Bilderbergers Royal Institute for International Affairs Tavistock your Club of Rome United Nations it goes on and on it's nice to hear them play the hits Antichrist system New World Order Bilderberg Group United Nations for me, it's like a warm blanket. You've been warped beyond repair. Probably.
leave this New World Order topic, we should at least acknowledge that one Glenn Beck tried to create a New World Order panic for the new century with his obsession, which many other loons shared, with a seemingly innocuous declaration by the UN called Agenda 21. In a sense, this appears to be a sort of thematic bridge between New World Order proper, which had its heyday pre-9-11, and full-on Q delusions, which of course date to the Trump administration. So, let's just briefly... For once in his life, this time when he says brief, he actually means brief. Let's see if I can do this. Agenda 21 was, well, I guess is, a UN resolution. (laughs) A non-binding UN resolution. Yeah, that's important to keep in mind. I mean, famously, even actual binding UN resolutions may or may not have any impact, depending on whether anyone actually pays attention to them, and whether or not any of the big boy countries decides to veto them before they can go through. But if UN resolutions strongly condemning this, that, or the other are kind of an international laughingstock half the time, imagine how toothless a non-binding resolution is. That's Agenda 21. Sort of like showing up to an old crush's wedding— waving a well-worn middle school do-you-like-me note with a yes buck checked when the preacher asks if anyone objects to this union. It's similar. But that didn't stop Glenn Beck from going screaming and rending clothes nutso about the threat it posed to American sovereignty. Younger listeners, Glenn Beck's conservative star has greatly waned since he was fired from his popular Fox News show, a fate we devoutly wish on Tucker Carlson in the coming months. But at one time, Beck was a sort of less racist, more teary Mormon version of Tucker, who constantly warned fearful viewers that the world as they knew it was seconds from descending into a God-hating, Nazi-communist hellscape, thanks to whatever innocuous trend or conspiracist screed he had most recently stumbled upon. Yeah, and he was way more fun to watch. Let's listen briefly to the way that he introduced this topic on his Fox show. Being laid. One of the main reasons for these same old tired ideas being revitalized is because those pushing globalism and government control on a global level have mastered the art of hiding it in plain sight and then just dismissing it as a joke. Their great example would be this. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah, that kind of sounds like Fahrenheit 451. I don't think that ended well. Agenda 21. They refer to it as sustainable development. It has been adopted by more than 178 governments. I believe there's only 191 on the planet. The United Nations had their big conference on the environment and development in Rio back in 1992, and that's when everybody jumped on board. But it sounds harmless. It's only Agenda 21. Yeah, yeah, go look this one up, because it's not so harmless. And it really, can I tell you something? You have to dig pretty deep into this thing. I mean, because look at all this. It doesn't get spooky until about here. Just section one. Social and economic dimensions, which talks about the redistribution of wealth, changing consumption patterns, promoting health, I love this one, change population, and sustainable settlement. Come on, Jess. You promised me that for once you wouldn't spend 20 goddamn minutes on a digression, and I believed you, and I told the nice people that, and now it sounds like you're going to make me a liar. No, 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 I'll behave. It's just so goddamn delicious. Okay, so to synopsize rather than go point to point through Beck's fugue state. This non-binding resolution suggests all the countries of the world should craft policies that acknowledge that the third world has gotten shafted for the past couple of centuries, and it might be nice if our policies going forward were a little more pro-poor countries. And again, it has no enforcement mechanism whatsoever. 
But Beck believes that the evil New World Order folks are using this as a Trojan horse to make your kids eat vegetarian lunch at school, and that your local municipality is about to turn your house over to Somali immigrants, especially if you're white. He didn't say those things exactly, but they're certainly in the ballpark. I guess I need hardly point out that none of this is true, but the thing I like best about it is that The Daily Show, back in its salad days, recognized Beck's didactic, emotional, off-the-rails, bizarro approach to conveying non-fact facts was maybe the ripest target for parody in all of the 20-teens, and so host Jon Stewart dedicated the lion's share of several episodes to a spectacularly effective rendition of the Glenn Beck style. You ask anybody who really looks at global politics and they will tell you China is the new goal. Why do you think there's so many Maoists hanging around the White House? (laughs) You don't see it, do you? Isn't it interesting that they go to China? It turns out the progressives advocating for government regulations on toxins in water and our children's toys turns us into China. The very country that has been putting toxins in water and our children's toys. It's so ingenious, it almost doesn't. It's so ingenious, it almost doesn't make any sense whatsoever. This is Glenn's blackboard, so we have to play by Glenn's rules, which are, if you subscribe to an idea, you also subscribe to that idea's ideology and to every possible negative consequence that that ideology remotely implies when you carry it to absurd extremes. (laughs) For instance, progressives, if you believe in a minimum safety net for the nation's neediest, you believe in total and absolute government control. So, if you believe that faith provides a strong moral tent post for a nation's foundation that could only lead to totalitarian theocracy. <laughs> but, but, but John, that's crazy. <laughs> that can't be right, because there would be all kinds of redonkulous embedded clues. You're absolutely motherfucking right. <laughs> and of course, Stewart brought this persona back out for an encore when Beck was fired from Fox for being too crazy. And we enjoyed a brief period where he thought that the world might get a little saner. Back in, what was that? Oh, 2011. No dice then. By the way, Glenn Beck still had the third highest rated show in cable news. Well, John, maybe Fox News thought it would be useful to pick some random talk radio host rehashing the same tired old John Birch Society conspiracy theories to seed ultra-conservative viewpoints into the news cycle while making the rest of the network seem centrist by comparison. But he then began to believe his own messianic delusions and became a giant pain in the ass. So they dropped his ass. Yeah, right, yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah, that's what happened. Back in 2012, Beck published one of his many literary efforts on the subject of Agenda 21, a novel of the all-too-imminent future titled Agenda 21. There's one of them book trailers that you see these days on YouTube for this gem, but it's got no dialogue. Just ominous music and the image of impoverished, multiracial former Americans lined up to receive their tiny morsels of future soil and green food before an elderly and presumably useless citizen is fed, headfirst and alive, into an environmentally sound crematorium, maybe to be transformed into soil and green equivalent? 
Regardless, Jessard's just going to read excerpts of the book description from Amazon over the soundtrack to that trailer I just described. It's an audio, audio extravaganza. Just a generation ago, this place was called America. Now, after the worldwide implementation of a UN-led program called Agenda 21, citizens have two primary goals in the new republic. To create clean energy and to create new human life. Those who cannot do either are of no use to society. This bleak and barren existence is all that 18-year-old Emmeline has ever known. She dutifully walks her energy board daily and accepts all male pairings assigned to her by the authorities. With the authorities closing in and nowhere to run, Emmeline embarks on an audacious plan to save her family and expose the Republic. But is she already too late? Hopefully it's obvious that this New World Order panic was yet another situation where free-floating anxiety latches onto some minor and passing thing and turns it into a threat to life as we know it. Or to put it in another way, QAnon with a different accent. But to transition to our next section, let's listen back to Glenn Beck's original Agenda 21 freakout and hear what he has to say about a particular political dynasty and its relationship to his panic of the moment. It starts to make more sense when you see who's responsible for all of this. First, Bro Harlem Brutland. I love her. I don't really know how to say her name because I don't know anybody who names their child with the first name G-R-O. Grow. She's also really close friends with the Clintons. Oh, they get along so great. Where is she? Oh, there she is. Yahoo! Right here. There she is. She's also active in the Clintons' global initiative. She's there for the annual meetings. (laughs) Yeah. She was there when Hillary received a German media award in 2005. And here's Hillary wishing her dear friend happy 70th birthday. Watch. Here she is. As a former environment minister, a longtime advocate for sustainable development, and most recently as a United Nations special envoy for climate change, mm. you helped set the stage for intensive diplomatic and scientific work being done yes. on this issue today. Yada, yada, yada. Okay. Ah, uh, the Clintons. It always, always seems to come back to the Clintons, doesn't it? any of us who were around back in 92. And even Jesuit wasn't old enough to vote in the first election Bill won, though if he could have voted for Bubba, he would have. Yeah, and he and his wife were definitely outsized pop culture figures at that point. But I don't think anybody in the early 90s could possibly have foreseen how much and how long these two people would be on the stage of American politics. To be fair, Ronald Reagan had a seismic impact on how Americans voted and saw their government. And until Trump remade the party in his own garish image, All GOP hopefuls had to swear fealty to the Gipper's legacy to have a hope of attaining national power. But together, Bill and Hillary were either actual candidates or casting a shadow over every single election between 1992 and 2020, with potentially the sole exception of 2012. Though if you count the Republicans' attempt to leverage Clinton's role as Secretary of State and the Benghazi disaster into a defeater for Obama's second term bit, you could even argue that there was a Clinton in the middle there as well. 
Aside from the Roosevelts, it would be hard to find a couple in the past century who had more political impact on the nation. And it all started back in the 1990s, when the relatively unknown governor of Arkansas ran a dark horse candidacy for president. If you weren't there, it was a weird election cycle. In 1991, coming off the wild, swift USA, USA success of the first Iraq war, incumbent George H.W. Bush, that's Bush 41, not Bush 43, seemed like such a shoe-in for re-election that SNL ran a sketch about the impending Democratic primary titled Campaign 92, The Race to Avoid Being the Guy Who Loses to Bush. Campaign 92, The Race to Avoid Being the Guy Who Loses to Bush. Welcome to this, the first of a series of debates among the five leading Democrats who are trying to avoid being forced by their party into a hopeless race against President George Bush. Each, of course, is under enormous pressure to be the chump who will take on the futile task of running against this very, very popular incumbent. They are Senator... Notice the presidency was still such a presumed sausage fest that they just went ahead and said guy, not person. The point is, Bush at that point seemed undefeatable. Then the economy went into recession, a wildcard named Ross Perot got into the race, stealing some votes and plenty of attention from the president, and a young sax player whose race laser-focused on the internal slogan, It's the Economy, Stupid, won the day and was sworn in January of 1993. But from the fucking second the Clintons hit the national headlines, it seems that political enemies from their time in the governor's mansion in Arkansas were already screeching about the couple's corruption, perfidy, and in the biggest stretch of the imagination, the trail of dead bodies they had supposedly left behind them. From my perspective as the son of a moderately Republican household in the Deep South, Clinton and his policies were a breath of fresh air. The fact that he was about the same age as my dad, yet seemed way, way cooler than my pops, only endeared him to me further. Which made me even more confused at the seeming tidal wave of conspiracy theorizing about how he and Hillary were basically the second coming of the Goebbelses. By the way, I'm not trying to say I'm somehow above the idea of dismissing and vilifying political opponents. I liked Clinton back in my 20s because he seemed smart. And while H.W. was no dummy, he seemed a little out of touch. Those of you of a certain age will recall the grocery store scanner thing, which made him look like a fossil to young Americans at the time, however unfairly it was spun. But I didn't identify with Bill on the I want to fuck anything that moves to hell with my marriage vows aspect. I subsequently hated George W. Bush out of all proportion with my deep and fundamental disagreements with nearly everything he proposed or enacted while in office. And my distaste was not, if I'm honest, mostly about the hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths he unleashed with his tragically stupid Iraq war policy. Jesser is sad to admit that, like most Americans, he was slow to realize how catastrophic that war was going to be, by the way. No, I couldn't stand him because I hated, to quote the late 20s, early 30s Jesuit of the time, his stupid monkey face. Jesuit maintains that Bush looks like a chimp, but has fewer language skills. Then Obama came along. And although I had many disagreements with his policies and approach to political negotiation, his failure to push harder on areas that were, in my opinion, good for the health of our republic, offering a healthcare public option, for example, demanding more concessions from banks during the financial crisis, I just so admired the way he carried himself and represented my country that, in my mind, he could kind of do no wrong. I admitted all that to note my priors going into this topic and to state for the record that we're all human and we all have our weak spots. I had, and kind of still have a straight guy crush on Obama that makes me overlook his flaws, and I still hate W's monkey face. 
Clearly then, I can totally understand why some conservative people in the 90s just couldn't fucking stand Bill and Hillary Clinton. And there are plenty of reasons to hold both of them up to skeptical consideration. Which, rest assured, we'll get to. But what I'm saying is, even as we admit that political biases and feelings can run deep, the response to the Clintons seemed out of all proportion to their political ascent. At least at the time. Now this is just the way things are in American politics. Exactly. There wasn't a precedent, in my experience, for this kind of political vitriol in the public discourse. Not to speak ill of the recently dead, but the horrible, bloviating, racist, sexist piece of shit Rush Limbaugh, whose national star really rose on the back of Clinton hatred, briefly got an actual TV show out of it, in spite of the fact that he's one of the least telegenic humans who ever lived. Real-life example of the humor on Limbaugh's TV show? Mentioning there was a cute kid in the White House, then showing a still of the Clintons' dog. He corrected his mistake with an awkward picture of the then 12-year-old Chelsea Clinton, clearly implying that she was a dog. A 12-year-old. What a knee-slapper. What a fucking asshole. I know this is standard practice on the internet these days, but trust me, on a nationally syndicated, televised entertainment program, was beyond the pale in the early 90s. And of course, given Rush's love of spreading Clinton-related conspiracy theories, that moment can really be considered among the least of his offenses. Clinton hatred, the kind that's not based on good reasons, but rather the made-up ones, seems to be one of the through lines that connected the conspiracy-minded 90s to the QAnon era. So, to try and get a handle on it, we used a book that had been sitting on our shelf for six long years, waiting for us. Conspiracy Theories, Secrecy and Power in American Culture, by Mark Fenster. What mainstream news readers and listeners at the time may remember most clearly about the Clinton conspiracy theories of the 90s is the Vince Foster murder story. Foster, a deputy White House counsel and personal friend of the Clintons, found himself the target of negative press concerning an early Clinton political scandal. There were tons of these at the time, both real Clinton shady shit and made-up anti-Clinton shady shit. Unfortunately, Foster took this exposure really hard. The negative press exacerbated his existing clinical depression, and he eventually took his own life in a D.C. park. Or, that's what the Clintons wanted you to think. Almost before the body was cold, politically motivated rumors started flying about the many reasons why the Clintons actually had their friend Vince murdered. Four years later, Ken Starr's independent probe, the fourth such investigation into the matter, concluded, like all the rest, that the cause of death was suicide. If you think that deterred the people who were certain that this was a Clinton hit job, well, you haven't listened to this show very closely, I can tell you that. Fenster does some nice work talking about how the president's confusion on this topic made it impossible for him to understand the truly dedicated conspiracists. Quoting Clinton responding to Larry King in early 94, who asked if there were any new developments in the case, he said the following, Dana, I'm gonna need a Bill Clinton impression here. God damn it. I don't think we know any more than in the beginning, because I just really don't believe there's anything more to know. Acting. Fenster, whose book is a fascinating look at the hermeneutics of conspiracy, that is, theory and interpretation of conspiracy thinking, and I'll make him stop using postmodern deconstruction words. Cross my heart. Clinton's statement, there isn't any more to know, is a fundamentally anti-conspiracist hermit, sorry, theory of interpretation, because it presumes there's a limit to interpretation. But as we all know from years following the Mobius strip rabbit trail thoughts of conspiracists, the interpretation never ends. To quote Fenster, Clinton's assumption can gain no purchase within a system that respects no limits in its assumption about the secret treachery of true political power. 
there is always something more to know about an alleged conspiracy. Exactly. There's always more to know, even when there isn't. Which, of course, means that, again quoting Fenster, the president is trapped in a circular, endless game in which every declaration of innocence and every piece of evidence put forward to exonerate him becomes interpreted as further proof of his guilt. There were conspiracy theories about previous presidents in the modern era, certainly. Kennedy somehow selling the country out to the communists, for some reason, as the Birchers believed, is a great example. But even the lamest of lamestream news publications at the time noticed something different in the Clinton case. Fenster quotes the title of a bewildered U.S. News and World Report article from the era. Whatever it is, Bill Clinton likely did it. The piece surveyed the vast array of evidence-free accusations that were floating around, aided not only by Clinton's political opponents in Congress, but also some people whose axes started grinding, as we noted, back in his gubernatorial salad days. Which brings us to the two most important pieces of anti-Clinton conspiracy from the era, the independent documentary film The Clinton Chronicles, and the never-yet-out-of-circulation, constantly-growing, internet-list-turned-self-published book The Clinton Body Count. The Clinton Chronicles was the big one, really. This documentary, which was produced by some of the former governor's apparently numerous enemies in Arkansas, and released shortly after his victory in 1992, was in some ways a continuation of the long and proud history of American political smears. But the combination of actual scandals that were already dogging the president, some of which, like the Paula Jones sexual harassment suit, were first presented in this documentary and had real-world consequences. In the Jones case, Clinton settling out of court. Yeah, the real stuff, of which there was plenty. In this lurid screed, they combined that with some absolutely irresponsible extrapolations to convict Clinton of everything from sexual assault. Again, that one's pretty credible. To cocaine addiction, to conspiracy to traffic drugs for South American cartels, to a wide variety of murders. The Birchers, as we have seen, were eager to tar JFK. Another scandal-prone, moderately liberal president. With just these sorts of accusations. But the wide distribution and relative professionalism of the production made the Clinton Chronicles something unprecedented in modern American politics. And of course, it arrived just as the modern conservative news echo chamber was being constructed. With, again, Rush Limbaugh leading the way. Now, of course, we're used to every presidential and even off-year election cycle marking the release of numerous, well-funded, competently made, almost totally misleading docu-hit pieces from the famous anti-Hillary doc that eventually led to the infamous Supreme Court Citizens United ruling to Dinesh D'Souza's numerous, completely discredited documentaries about first Obama and then the Biden administrations to the famous Swift Boat Veterans for Truth attack on John Kerry. The right wing is prepared to produce these things forever, providing endless talking points and grist for the fever swamps where lies and half-truths eventually are manufactured into total delusions like QAnon. So nearly 30 years on from its premiere, I thought it'd be a good idea to review this prototype documentary to see how it sowed the seeds that would eventually grow into Q. Also, he watched it so you don't have to. You're welcome. The paranoia leaps off the screen from the very opening disclaimer, which lets you know that powerful people don't want you watching this important film, U.S. Voter of 1994, 
Okay, okay, we get it. We're watching Samizdat that the lamestream media doesn't want us to see. Take us to the good stuff, which comes with our first voiceover, an introduction to the 42nd president. On January 20th, 1993, William Jefferson Clinton became the 42nd president of the United States. At the time, most Americans were not aware of the extent of Clinton's criminal background, nor were they aware of the media blackout, which kept this information from the public. As state attorney general and later governor, Bill Clinton in 12 years achieved absolute control over the political, legal, and financial systems of Arkansas. As president, he would attempt to do the same with the nation by bringing members of his inner circle with him to Washington. The hijacking of America was underway, and its impact on future generations would be incalculable. So, Clinton is an evil, all-powerful criminal who is taking over the United States with its cronies. I am certain that those behind this film were just as concerned about every other president, Democratic or Republican, who brought his political circle with him when he came to D.C. Clinton is different, Dana. He's the devil. Sorry, but it's true. After all, he was basically raised in the pits of hell, also known as Hot Springs, Arkansas. Bill Clinton was born in Hope and, of course, raised in Hot Springs. They had open body houses over there at the time, and they had open gambling at the time. But Clinton grew up in that, in that atmosphere, that different atmosphere of Hot Springs. If it felt good, you did it. If you weren't already clued into the fact that those behind this film pretty much think Bill Clinton is a grown-up version of that kid from The Omen, that last quote seals the deal. What follows are a bunch of complaints about how he doled out favors to cronies, bent rules, ran roughshod over those who tried to investigate his malfeasance, had only a passing acquaintance with telling people the truth, etc. Which, again, probably some of it's true, some of it's exaggerated, some of it's made up, at least in this podcaster's evaluation. But two features really set this film apart. The first is its obsession with proving that Clinton was a huge cokehead in thrall to the cartel. And the second is the aforementioned Clinton body count, which had its origins in this very film before going on to publication in a variety of printed and internet formats over the years. First, the cocaine thing. Chronicles features a number of witnesses who swear they saw Bill, his ne'er-do-well brother Roger, and a host of cronies snorting booger sugar at wild orgy parties throughout his decade-long tenure as Arkansas governor. The fact that they suggest he was doing the Bolivian marching powder at wild parties where he hooked up with a number of women not his wife lends credibility to the story. It's not hard to imagine a young Bill showing up at any soiree that advertised available, willing nubiles. But outside of his enemies, it's hard to find credible sources suggesting that Clinton's addictions ever extended beyond poonhoundery to substances. Clinton Chronicles is larded with accusers, though, and goes well beyond suggesting that Clinton and cronies used and shared their tootski with young women. After everybody left, I would stick around as if I were working on the annual report. That would give me access to all the documents. And I make copies of them all. For about two months, I watched accounts accumulate money. At the end of the month, they zero balanced. They're laundering drug money. There were a hundred million a month in cocaine coming in and out of Mean, Arkansas. They had a problem. They were doing so much money in cocaine, hundred million. You inc- you create a problem in a little state like Arkansas. How do you clean one hundred million dollars a month? Those of a certain age will recognize that reference to the Rose Law Firm as the legal outfit that a young Ms. Rodham Clinton worked for during her husband's governorship, and the place where they met some scandal-ridden members of the eventual Clinton administration, including the eventually convicted Webster Hubble and the tragic figure Vince Foster. 
It's worth noting now, by the way, that the Clintons, for their many faults, were the subject of a number of extremely hostile and thorough investigations by both the Republican Congress and the then-infamous Kenneth Starr, he who uncovered the Monica Lewinsky affair while ostensibly investigating an unrelated scandal, the Whitewater real estate controversy, which doesn't really directly concern us here. But the point is, if the Clintons or the Rose Law Firm were actually laundering drug money, a lot of Republicans would have been very happy to prove it. But they didn't. It was an obsession, though. Sort of a Hunter Biden's laptop of the old millennium's waning days. Here's where things get weird. Like, legit weird in a mostly coincidental way. There are, in fact, three different fascinating, relatively plausible stories involving drugs or accusations of drug violence, all centered around the airport in Mena, Arkansas, a tiny town that loomed weirdly large in the 80s. The first strand has to do with Barry Seal, a former TWA pilot who by the late 70s was smuggling huge volumes of the white stuff into the States from Columbia in small planes flying under the radar. He eventually was caught, turned DEA informant, and was assassinated by the cartel. But for our purposes, the most interesting thing about him was that to avoid official notice, he started using the Mina airport to maintain and repair his fleet of small planes. Meaning Mina was his U.S. smuggling hub? No. As it turns out, Seal dropped the coke into Louisiana swamps from the air. He only used the Mina airport for maintenance, never landed with the drugs themselves on the planes. Well, that's a pretty lame part of the story, Jesuit. Fair enough, but that same airport has been more or less credibly linked over the years to CIA efforts to arm the Contras and spy on the Sandinistas in the war-torn nation of Nicaragua. Supposedly, they used tiny Mina Airport to launch black ops flights, sending guns and taking pictures down south while avoiding the prying eyes of government or press oversight. We should note that the CIA's own internal investigation exonerated the agency of these allegations in 1996, and no smoking gun has ever been uncovered. But we're officially going to allow you to be straniacs in good standing and still believe there might be something fishy going on, this being the CIA and all. What you may note you haven't heard yet is any connection from either of these stories to Bill Clinton. But that's where the Chronicle steps back in, with a lurid tale that, if true, would certainly mark the former president as an irredeemable monster. We jump back in as our narrators attempt to connect Clinton to Seal's Mina Airport, alleging with essentially no evidence that Seal was in fact using Arkansas as his cocaine distribution point, which again it probably wasn't. But of course, if Seal's dropping his drug in Louisiana, that story wouldn't leave room for Clinton, right? There was, in my opinion, more than enough evidence to prosecute a number of people for crimes regarding the Barry Seal case at Mina. I snuck around, crawled through the bushes, yeah. thinking that I'd really have to hide to see him unloading the dope. Didn't have to. And you could walk right up to the airport and they'd unloaded it right in front of you. They would unload it. They'd offload it. They didn't care. Uh, a certain degree of money laundering had taken place uh, among these people that were associated with Barry Seal. Clinton had integrated a number of corrupt cops, judges, and politicians into high-level positions to ensure the continued success of the drug smuggling and money laundering operations. All was going well until a fateful night in the fall of 1987. On August 22nd, 1987, Kevin had spent the night with his friend Don Henry. They left uh, Don's home around 12.30 or quarter to one uh, on the 23rd of August in early morning hours, and uh, the next thing we knew, they had been run over by a train. 
there seems to be a small airstrip in the area. There have been sightings and uh, reports of small airplanes flying very low with lights off in the area. I believe they saw something they shouldn't have seen. Three weeks later, their deaths were ruled accidental by the state. Ultimately, it was proven that Don Henry had been stabbed in the back and Kevin Ives' skull had been crushed prior to the placement of their bodies on the railroad tracks. However, Malik stood by his ruling that the boys had simply fallen asleep on the tracks. Malik had been kept in office at the insistence of Governor Clinton for a number of years, despite vigorous public outcry to have him removed. The story of those two kids' deaths has some real mystery to it. The initial coroner's findings that they got super-baked and fell asleep on the railroad tracks has been plausibly questioned, and it appears the two may actually have been murdered by persons unknown and then placed on the tracks to cover up that murder. On the other hand, the conclusion that the Clinton haters in the movie jump to is completely out of left field, unless you have already decided that, as previously mentioned, Bill Clinton is Satan incarnate. The people at the track that night, to my knowledge, were Dan Harmon, Keith McCaskill, Larry Rochelle. I do know that the boys were watching the drop site, okay? And they got curious as to what was being dropped there. The fact is, we know who killed these kids. The whole reason this case has been slowed down, stopped, wherever we're at. They can't do anything with it as long as Clinton's in office because it tracks right back to Bill Clinton being involved in the cover-up. He took care of everybody that ever covered anything up in this case. Everybody got promoted. A number of people approached the police with information about Don and Kevin's murders and consequently were murdered themselves. Shortly before Keith McCaskill was murdered, he, he knew that he was fixing to be murdered. He told his family goodbye, told his friends goodbye. If the investigation was stalled until Clinton was out of office, then why hasn't it moved forward in the nearly 25 years since he left? This is a tragic story and probably an unsolved homicide. But the threats that supposedly bind Clinton to drug smuggling and murder are tenuous at best. And as that last clip started to mention, those kids were supposedly just the first of a long string of murders perpetrated by the Clintons to cover their misdeeds. Which brings us to a recent edition of the frequently updated Clinton body count story. Because decades have passed since the film was made, we needed an edition of more recent vintage. Luckily, his Kindle Unlimited subscription was happy to oblige. Yes, indeed. It appears that no one owns the copyright on the title The Clinton Body Count, so we had some choices. But we ended up perusing the new Clinton body count, Suspicious Political Deaths, by the presumably pseudonymous Press Gray, with an E at the end. That's a much better pseudonym than Fearful Jesuit. You're not wrong. Most of this is a repackaging of the original list with additional material concerning the Clinton corruptions, both real and imagined, that we touched on above. So, of course, that means a detailing of everyone that the former first couple knew who died during essentially a 20-year period where Bill was first governor and then president. It's similar to the supposed mysterious deaths that plagued the JFK investigation, and which we debunked back in our epic Assassinations JFK edition episode in the feed. So we see case files. Did you hear the scare quotes around that term? He intended that you would. About scenarios such as this, which we've abridged from the original. C. Victor Razor, age 52, acted as the finance co-chairman of Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign and was the strategic mind behind the cash flow. No idea what that means. Timeline, Thursday, July 30th, 1992. On the way to a fishing expedition, Victor Razor and his son, along with three other passengers, were killed when their Haviland Beaver float plane crashed on the outskirts of Dillingham, Alaska. Only the pilot and a sixth unknown passenger survived. 
the NTSB report simply cited pilot error as the cause of the accident. No serious problems with the airplane were found in the investigation of the crash. You may be wondering why the Clintons would have had this guy murdered. Like, what dirt did he have? What unspeakable secrets died with him? On that, the book is totally mute. Like, there's no suggestion of any reason the Clintons would have had to kill this guy who worked for them. It's left up to the presumably billery-loathing reader to draw his or her, but, let's face it, mostly his, own conclusions about why this man was murdered. This is one of several small plane crashes in which Clinton associates tragically perish that are noted throughout this book. There's even one of them that raised mainstream eyebrows at the time. Ron Brown, then Secretary of Commerce in Clinton's cabinet, was under investigation for potentially accepting bribes from foreign powers when he died with 34 other people in an Air Force plane crash in Croatia. There were lingering questions at the time among non-lunatics about the fact that Brown's death took some heat off the Clintons. But of course, coincidences happen all the time. Not that we're going to convince any conspiracy theorists. Let's briefly put this idea through its paces and see how it holds up to minimal critical scrutiny. What would you need to know in order to determine whether these crashes indicated a murderous pattern of conspiracy? Well, first of all, how many people do Bill or Hillary Clinton know? Also, how many people have worked for them or their causes over the years? How many planes of that size crash in a given year? What's the total number of plane crashes we would expect in the huge personal business and political circles of the average president of the United States? How does the total number of people who died in plane crashes associated with the Clintons compare to the total number of people who died in plane crashes who knew the Bushes, or Reagan, or Obama, or Trump? I mean, if three or four people Jesuit knew over the past 20 years all went down like the big bobber, that would be super suspicious. I know I wouldn't be jumping in any body hall and killing prop numbers if that were the case. But he knows maybe a thousand people at the outside? The Clintons have undoubtedly personally interacted with tens or even a hundred thousand people over their careers, and perhaps millions can be tied to them in some way. How surprising, given those numbers, are a few plane crash victims. Of course, the book offers no analysis of these factors whatsoever. There are a bunch of other quote-unquote mysterious deaths listed, a tragic one-car accident of Clinton's sign language interpreter in 92, for example. Why she posed a threat, who had to be silenced, goes totally unmentioned. There's also a standard array of heart attacks and strokes hitting people at fairly young ages, etc. For many of these, there's not even an attempt to concoct a plausible motive for the Clintons' hit squads to have targeted these people. It's just throwing shit at the idea of the Clintons' malfeasance and seeing what sticks. Obviously, Vince Foster's definitely not a suicide gets a lot of ink, but we already covered that. The film ends with some very 1990s attacks on Clinton, that his attempts to ingratiate himself with the Christian right by waving his born-again bona fides to distract from his sex scandals is disingenuous and gross. Which, like, agreed? And that since he was a draft dodger, he's going to destroy my military. Clinton could get us involved in a hopeless quagmire, uh, easily, in Europe, in Africa in North Korea, in any number of places, because not only of his ineptness and his lack of understanding, but his contempt for military things. This goes back at least as far as the 60s in his college days, when he not only attended and participated in anti-American rallies, but organized them. Uh, back in the, and, and incidentally, those were not anti-war rallies. Those were anti-American rallies. He has no loyalty to this nation. He has no loyalty to its fighting men. He has not enough integrity to have any loyalty to its population. He knows how to say the right things, but he's lied for so long that I really don't think he knows the difference anymore between the lie and the truth. 
It would be a fun exercise to go back, find the folks who were in this film, and ask them what they think of known sexual predator, draft dodger, and accused insulter of servicemen and women as losers and suckers, Donald Trump. I'm going to guess that time has softened their stances on these qualities as being disqualifying for presidential fitness, at least when DJT is on the ballot. Now, once again, it's weird that these people all resorted to this ridiculous bullshit creating the echo chamber that Hillary referred to famously as the great story here for anybody willing to find it and write about it and explain it is this vast right wing conspiracy that has been conspiring against my husband since the day he announced for president, which people have ridiculed her for, but you know, was probably a pretty fair assessment of the situation at the time. It is. But of course, that doesn't absolve the Clintons of their many ethical shortcomings over the years, as demonstrated by late left-winger turned Iraq war supporter and untouchably brilliant polemicist Christopher Hitchens, who wrote a book at the end of the Clinton presidency titled No One Left to Lie To, excoriating both Clintons on factual grounds, as he was only too happy to share in this Charlie Rose episode. The Clinton, you see, are not political. They are to do with, with, a, with, a, with a ruthless a megalomaniac political style and with a re- real self-advertised readiness for, for corruption and dirty work. I always thought this new liberal Democrat, or rather, excuse me, was a bit glib and a bit sordid because if you, after eight years of Reagan and four of Bush, to conclude that the main problem in American politics was that the Democratic Party was too much to the left, seemed to me a weird conclusion. And it was all based on saying, well, we, what we've really got to do is address the morals of the underclass. That's the real problem with this country, is the underclass doesn't behave well. I thought that actually there were some overclass problems that needed attention. Bill Clinton is... You know, for you, almost the embodiment of all evil. Well, I think he's an abnormally ghastly individual in every respect, yes. In every respect? Every respect, yeah. Because he lies about... Because he lies about everything to everyone. Which is the title of the book. Yeah, he uses his daughter as a prop, he uses the help as comfort women, and then uses public money to defame them and blackmail them. Suppose that one had got oneself into some indiscretion of that sort. Right. It's impossible to imagine it happening. I can imagine doing various things. Yeah. in the hope of you know, salvaging myself. But among them would not be appearing in front of the cameras holding my daughter's hand. I, just, I know I wouldn't do that. Judgment Call me old-fashioned, there are some things oh, I no, just no, no. won't do. <laughs> well, remember what I'm pushing back against. I'm pushing back against a huge consensus of people who said, for a long, long time, all this is his private stuff, it's none of our affair. I mean, they didn't say that about other corrupt presidents. So this, this corrupt president and this crooked president has come with a huge bodyguard of falsity and propaganda supplied by intellectuals and academics and journalists for him, which Mr. Nixon couldn't count on getting, didn't get, nor Mr. Reagan. So it seemed to me, yeah, it was more, it was more incumbent upon me to say, say what I thought and to point out how people were fooling themselves and fooling others. One of the things that Mr. Clinton uh, does when his comfort women don't suit his purposes any longer is he arranges to have them defamed. You know, Jennifer Flowers was called a liar and a gold digger and all of this. And I won't take you through the whole story. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. In the Lewinsky case, before they knew she had any forensic evidence, they put out the story that she was trying to blackmail the president, that she was saying to him, if you don't sleep with me, I'll say that you have. Now, it bears on the question of obstruction of justice because we know that they tried to find her various public and private jobs, public sector and private sector jobs, to, to secure a perjured affidavit. That's well, but, say, but there's a link that you can't, I mean, you know. What is it? They, they well, did. They, they did. did. Did they not? Try to find her public jobs? Certainly. Uh, and public, the, private jobs, sure. Private. sure. And public At the, the UN, U- with the U.S. Richardson office in the UN, depending on the White House, right, couldn't right, do right. enough for her. Right. It happens she gave a perjured affidavit. Okay. Could be there's no connection. Okay, but, but. And if those comments aren't enough for you, here's Hitch on C-SPAN 2's book chat around the same time. 
This president, let me put it like this, maybe because I'm an immigrant to this country, I'm, I perhaps am too easily overcome with reverence, but it seems to me one of the things about Clintonism is that it's, a, it's profaned, it's blasphemed by turning the uh, Oval Office into a sort of cheap uh, massage parlor, the Lincoln bedroom into a sort of cheap motel for fat cats, and Arlington Cemetery into something that can be franchised for fundraising. Mr. Lawrence invented a war record for himself so that he could, along with a hefty donation, have himself buried in Arlington Cemetery and he and his wife appointed to uh, diplomatic positions and so on. When it was all discovered that this had been a fraud, he had to be dug up out of Arlington Cemetery and reburied. Now that would get me down. In my book I say that I do believe that the president used um, military force in a capricious and promiscuous way to save his own skin in Sudan last August, the bombings of Khartoum and of Kabul, and also later the uh, Christmas time or impeachment time bombings of um, Baghdad. I think I've made that case, if, if you don't find it convincing, I can only say that so far no one, has no one has rebutted or attempted to rebut this hypothesis. There's a great deal of evidence to show that the president, on his own initiative, used what should have been American military force for entirely private and corrupt purposes related to his own court calendar. It's the most shocking allegation to be made, I think, against the president. And the, the, the appalling fact that it's true hasn't sunk into people yet because I don't think they can quite take it, but they'll have to face it. He had plenty to say about Hillary's run in 2008 as well. And we can only imagine what a field day he would have had in 2016 lambasting both candidates had his love of cigarettes not taken from us far too soon. So the Clintons brought some of their opprobrium on themselves. But there was still something different about the wildness of the accusations, the apparent feeling that the Clintons' evil knew no possible bounds, that their lies covered a black ocean of evil secrets. This was different than standard-issue political smearing at the time. And as Fenster notes, even the wilder conspiracies were paid at least lip service by more legitimate-seeming outlets, like the Washington Times and the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, which wouldn't have touched grassroots Bircher-style conspiracy theorizing in previous decades. And you can trace a straight line from anti-Clinton hysteria to the screaming, frothing, partisan mess we find ourselves in now. Ironically, of course, one of the Clintons is still front and center in the conspiracy scaffolding that QAnon has built atop the many strands of paranoia provided by the 1990s that we covered here. And with that, unbelievably, I think we're ready to talk about what QAnon's done since we last checked in on them. Remind me when that actually was, Dana? Like, summer of 2020? When you talked about how dumb everything they said about the pandemic was? Oh, that's not that long ago. How much crazier could things possibly have gotten since then? terrible dream. All of those different strands of paranoid historical thought drawing together into a pussy reservoir of irrational, quasi-psychotic raving with violent, often fascistic and fundamentalist overtones waiting to erupt into some sort of violent pimple of hatred. Thank goodness I woke up. Now, let's take a look outside. I'm assuming this QAnon thing is withered up and blown away in the year or so since we started covering this topic. Suez Canal. Remember that? Mm. It was deliberately 
okay. knocked into that and lodged in there because what was on it? Thousands and thousands of children and women with sex trafficking and adrenochrome and also those vaccines. Uh, the calm before the storm, it's like, again, you don't but tell the Do you think people will take up arms? Oh, we're going to, and I'm looking forward to that. That is our constitutional right. I would love a physical battle, but I know Who what I'm seeing. Who are you going to be fighting? Elites or whatever, or the UN, the supposed UN. Yes, please. Mainstream media, all complacent. They but admitted it. It's always, and it's never changed. That's us. So I'm. Um, yeah. Again, I don't. Honey, you just work for him. I call you an innocent, and you're a baby too. I will be there to defend you. My dad thought that he'd carry out martial law. Donald Trump would. Yeah. 21-year-old Rebecca and other close family members say her father grew isolated working from home during the pandemic and became so obsessed with QAnon that he grew paranoid. Well, he got a gun and shot, tried to kill everyone in my family, and I probably, he would have tried to kill me too if I was there. On September 11th, he killed Rebecca's mother, the family dog, and shot her sister. He was then killed in a standoff with police who say they are investigating any specific motive, which is yet to be determined. How was your dad? Former President Trump has long flirted with QAnon, but this illustrated meme he reshared last week with QAnon slogans and a Q on his lapel is one of his most brazen endorsements of the conspiracy theory. Even President Donald J. Trump put that on there, a guy wearing a Q pin, storm is upon us, patriots are in control. We are Hosts on this QAnon radio show celebrating. And that is the reason that you are all here, because you know the truth. You all know who Donald Trump really is. You all know who the fight is really about and who the players are that actually want to destroy yes, our country. Is. You have to get off the news. You have to go someplace else and find it. Can you time. point to me a single judge that has ruled that the election was stolen or that there was malfeasance that would have overturned the results of any state? Look at the Supreme Court. Well, the Supreme Court hasn't accepted any of these cases either. How do you know that? Because they have a docket and they list what cases they review and they issue their opinions. You choose to believe that, you can believe that, but I have alternative news and I find out differently. What do you think? Obama is playing Sleepy Joe Biden in a mask. George Woods, the actor, is playing Sleepy Joe trying to wake people up by pretending to spend all this money in Ukraine that... He signs a, and he's signing a blank paper. Tupac still alive? Yep. Where's he? Jackson is still alive. Where are they? In there with Trump. Well, they're in the, and I'm, we're out here, damn it. I would have loved to have seen Tupac. I'll show you a picture. Baron, do you follow QAnon? The FBI says it's a dangerous conspiracy theory. Do I follow? No, I don't follow QAnon. I follow the missing children. I have a child right now in Ohio that my team is saving. That's what I want to talk about. Not a conspiracy. You posted about, Q, you posted about QAnon yesterday, right? On your Instagram story? Photos actually show that Trump hosted Liz Crocken, one of the more prominent QAnon supporters, for a fundraiser in support of a so-called documentary on sex trafficking. Crocken claimed that she spoke with Trump about Pizzagate. You may remember that was the conspiracy theory that falsely claimed that Democrats were running a child sex trafficking ring within a pizza parlor here in Washington. And don't forget, this all comes just weeks after Donald Trump met with Kanye West and far-right white supremacist Nick Fuentes at the same spot there at Mar-a-Lago. So, I'm wrong yet again. And by the way, those were just randomly chosen quotes from like the top five YouTube results I found when I limited my search to QAnon craziness from the past two years. 
In addition, thanks to some of the many Strainiacs who are members of our Facebook group, I have a number of other update topics to cover, in addition to the material that I've gathered myself. I'm going to try to mention those who clued me into the additional topics that I'll be covering soon. But, as he kind of implied, he's almost definitely going to fuck that attempt up, so please take any errors as well-intentioned. So, where to begin? In lieu of making Dana retool the wheel of arbitrary episode starting points, or, more specifically, because he asked, and I said no, I'm just going to call an audible and jump straight back to the aftermath of the QAnon COVID debacle. As we noted, that was where we stopped with our QAnon coverage back in 2020, at which point we couldn't have imagined how politicized the COVID issue would become in the years since then. Though, living in post-2016 America, he probably should have imagined exactly that. And there remains a variety of relatively mainstream opinions on everything from healthy people's ongoing need for vaccines. Please note, by mainstream, we don't mean equally valid. The billions of shots that have been administered since 2021 offer incredibly compelling additional evidence, if any was needed, that the various COVID vaccines are one of the most astonishing and safest medical innovations in human history. And that everyone who cares about the sick and infirm among us, and who didn't have some health issue that would prevent them from being vaccinated, should have gotten at least the first couple of doses. What he's saying here is that while one side is wrong, they aren't making arguments necessarily hamstrung by gibbering insanity. For example, as with literally all medical interventions, including aspirin, their measurable, if vanishingly rare and nearly all minuscule, side effects of all vaccines, and therefore the arguments against may be debated in something like good faith. Yes, and the same goes for masks. Okay, okay, I hear a bunch of you yelling at me. You think this podcast listening thing only goes one way, but it turns out there's a secret feature that I can pay for that lets me stream audio from users' Bluetooth headphones while they listen to my show. I hardly need to tell you he's lying, right? Damn it, Dana. I'm trying to start a conspiracy theory here. I understand that's where the big bucks are. But seriously, about the mask thing, I want you to know that, as good Bay Area citizens, we wore the hell out of our masks. And it's likely that our local peer group's strong compliance with the state-issued mask mandates probably had some positive impacts on the region's various COVID, Delta, Omega, etc. curves. But if you missed it, there was a very thorough, carefully controlled meta-study from Cochrane a while back that concluded that mask mandates as a policy weren't very effective in most cases. Again, and we feel like much of the mainstream coverage of the study didn't hammer this home, the Cochrane study concluded that, in aggregate, most mandates didn't do much. But that's because, as all of us know, about half the people you saw wearing masks were like hanging the masks off one ear or pulling it down below their noses because, as is well known, airborne diseases simply cannot pass through that powerful nose hair and snot barrier. The Cochrane study is designed to help craft better policy going forward and is not telling you you were stupid to wear a mask when you were asked to, or that in reality the QAnon loon who you saw on video a few years back destroying the Target mask display. This shit's all fucking over. This shit's fucking over. This shit's 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 over. Was right and you were wrong. Definitely not. But this is probably a good time for us to let our probably left-leaning audience know that we're going to cover some stuff in this section about Q and Trump that might make them a bit uncomfortable. If you're used to presuming that my admittedly center-left tendencies will keep you safe from challenging ideas, you may be disappointed when we start talking about the Russian dossier, the lab leak theory, and the reporting ethos of, for example, 
MSNBC during the Trump era. Now, the point we were trying to get to is that while obviously all of the conversation around COVID has unfortunately been politicized, and while there are much stronger arguments on one side of that political divide than the other, for the most part, we're going to focus on total batshittery and not these lopsided but still more mainstream arguments. Before we do that, though, we do need to touch on some fascinating developments that have arisen since our first mention of one controversy, an area where the evidence has gotten decidedly less one-sided than it was when we first reported on it three years ago. This is a suggestion that the only viable origin theory for COVID is a one that suggests it jumped via interspecies transmission from one of the animals in the Wuhan area meat market to one of the people buying their meat there. Right, and we noted previously, there was reason even way back in 2020 to give a little credence to the alternative theory, whereby the seemingly salient fact that in the same general Wuhan neighborhood there just happened to be a biological research lab, and that lab just happened to be working on viruses that are in the same general class as COVID. And that that might just mean that the coronavirus that caused all this havoc originated in this same lab. As part of the aforementioned politicization of everything about the coronavirus, this topic immediately became a part of the received wisdom of each side. But while certainly a lot of magination embraced the deliberate terrorist release of a Chinese bioweapon subvariant of the lab leak theory, and that version remains completely unsupported, ridiculous, and, usually, at least a little bit racist. It does seem to us that the side that, broadly, we find ourselves on. The side that tends to put lawn signs out assuring everyone that in their house, they trust science, among other liberal left platitudes. Yeah, that side. Well, and this is definitely introducing a theme that we're going to come back to over and over in this final section, but the Trump era's damage isn't limited to the right. It has also had the perverse effect of driving liberals and left-wingers into a reactive attitude that can be expressed as, essentially, if Trumpers believe it, it is necessarily bullshit which is always a dangerous assumption to make. Reflexively opposing anything a person says because that person said it is a real dumb place to be. It's actually one of them logical fallacies we like to point out. In this case, the argumentum ad hominem, or argument from the man. Meaning, you can reject arguments because the person who's saying them is wrong about something else, or smells bad, or thinks maple syrup tastes good, for example. I know. He hates maple syrup. It's weird. I'm not the weird one, Dana. The people who eat sweetened, boiled tree blood on their gross pancakes and waffles are fucked up, not me. But back to the subject, using any logical fallacies can only lead you into error. In this case, because however loathsome your opponent may be, they're going to be at least accidentally right every so often, and by automatically disagreeing with them, you're going to force yourself to be wrong when that happens. Which makes you look, well, dumb. Remember when we said Jesuit hated W's monkey face? Well, that is true. But in a real effort to countermand his natural distaste, he forced himself to accept that he agreed with at least two of the former president's policies. That is, the remarkably effective PEPFAR anti-AIDS program that has tremendously benefited a huge number of people in sub-Saharan Africa, and his proposed but ultimately rejected plan to index social security increases to rises in inflation instead of rises in productivity, which would help stabilize the fund without negatively impacting the living standards of seniors. So, what we're saying is, if Jesuit can do it, you can do it. It's unpleasant to listen to valid arguments issued by people you don't like, or even who you think are actually evil, but it's both doable and necessary. And one of the things that most of us dismissed too readily at first was the narrow version of the lab leak theory. 
As with many of us center lefties, the first time I had cause to re-examine this assumption on my part was when comedy saint of the 2000s John Stewart made a surprise appearance on Stephen Colbert's late night show and said some stuff that, while kind of off the cuff, it made a lot of sense. There's, there's a chance that this was created in a lab. There's an investigation. A chance? There's a know. novel respiratory coronavirus overtaking Wuhan, China. What do we do? Oh, you know who we could ask? The Wuhan novel respiratory coronavirus lab. The disease is the same name as the lab. So wait a minute. You work at the Wuhan respiratory coronavirus lab. Show me your business card. Oh, I work at the coronavirus lab in Wuhan. Oh, because there's a coronavirus loose in Wuhan. How did that happen? Maybe a bat flew into the cloaca of a turkey and then it sneezed into my chili and now we all have coronavirus. Yeah, you listen to that and it makes you rethink some of your baseline assumptions. And in the years since, the lab leak theory has, if anything, become still more plausible. So I was forced to double-check what I said about this whole thing in our first COVID episode back in 2020 to make sure I didn't say anything super stupid and overly dismissive. Fortunately, I didn't. You can, of course, re-listen and verify, but if anyone's going to rake Jesuit over the coals for a mistake, it's Jesuit himself. And while he appreciated every correction, for example, of the fact that so many of you noticed that he recently credited Brave New World to H.G. Wells instead of Aldous Huxley, Every one of your responses made his eyes bleed. Metaphorically. Not because you were wrong to say it, but because he was wrong to fuck it up. Anyway, he got the lab leak relatively right. Yeah, I'm going to give myself a pass on this one. While I didn't say it was likely, I did say it couldn't be dismissed out of hand. Though the more extreme versions, the ones that suggested COVID was deliberately developed as a bioweapon and then released either on purpose or accidentally, continue to have no evidence behind them whatsoever. And while we may never get a clear and definitive answer on this, given the Chinese government's complete refusal to work with foreign experts to research and nail down the facts, the lab leak theory definitely has yet to be disproved, has at least some reasonable evidence behind it, and is a totally valid potential conclusion. Or, to quote Catherine Ebbins, sober, thoughtful article in the March 2023 issue of Vanity Fair, There is fragmentary and circumstantial evidence supporting two credible but dueling hypotheses. One, that SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, spilled over to humans from an infected animal at the wet market in Wuhan where the disease first exploded into view. Or two, that the virus originated in a nearby laboratory in Wuhan. The Wuhan Institute of Virology, which was known to pursue risky coronavirus research, is roughly eight miles from the market. Even closer sits the Wuhan Center for Disease Control and Prevention, which also operates laboratories. So, in reality... We're still left pretty close to the status quo that obtained back in 2020, except that these days, some U.S. government departments lean toward the animal contamination theory, and some lean toward the lab leak. It's worth noting, though, that none of these declarations are delivered with high confidence, and once again with feeling, there's still no evidence whatsoever that COVID was a bioweapon, or that it was deliberately released. Which, again, are the conspiracists' preferred narratives. (laughs) 